This is a conversation with Dr. Pascal Wallish. He's a professor of neuroscience, data science, and psychology at New York University. In this conversation, which was the longest episode I've recorded to date, we end up talking about perceptions, illusion, subjective reality versus objective reality, free will, consciousness, simulations, you know, all the light, casual topics. And by the end of this episode, which is nearly three hours, we both felt that we had barely scratched the surface. So hopefully this is part one of a series of episodes that I record with Dr. Wallish. So if you really like this episode and if you'd like to see more of it, do let me know. This is no time. If you like what you see, then do hit subscribe on YouTube, follow on Spotify or rate five stars on Apple Podcasts. This project runs on your love and support. So if you'd like to see it continue, do consider making a donation on Patreon, Instagram, Anchor, Pick Your Poison. If not through financial support, then do consider sharing these episodes. All your likes and shares and comments will really go a long way. For the forms of love and support, you can follow this channel on Instagram or Twitter or follow me personally. And now, are you watching closely? It's no time. There's a Buddhist saying, if there were no illusion, there would be no enlightenment. Mm -hmm. First question for 50 points. How much of the world that we see today is nothing but an abstraction, a narrow projection of reality? How much of this beautiful world, this reality that we see, how much of it is one giant magic trick, one giant illusion? Oh, wow. Uh, you were not kidding when you said you're going to start big. Um, Always with the tough questions. <laughs> So first of all, I was not aware of this Buddhist saying, but that sounds very uh, enlightened, I guess. Uh, so uh, my argument would be most, if not all of it. The idea is so uh, from a data science perspective, what subjective reality is, is a projection of some higher dimensional space. We don't even know how many dimensions, but a very, very idiosyncratic and higher dimensional space on a shared lower dimensional embedding. So we, we project a highly subjective and who knows, idiosyncratic maybe, higher dimensional space into a shared evolutionary bound lower dimensional space of three, maybe four dimensions. Ah. So all of it, I guess. In short, everything's a lie. <laughs> no, 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 no lies. Lie, uh, lie um, presumes uh, intent to deceive. Yeah. And maybe that's there, maybe that's not. Uh, so we could argue this entity that created the projection is malicious or benign? We don't know. That's up to you to decide or to maybe can infer it from the, from, from, uh, from the properties of reality. Some people say there is so much suffering, right? Maybe the entity enjoys that. Maybe it feeds off that. And maybe that's what this is. Uh, other people might say, no, the creation, if you want to call it that, is so beautiful and so full of, you know, love and good things that it's benign. Who knows? You have brought up many interesting ideas. Right, right, right. We will explore all of them. Great. First, let's explore the idea of this reality being this abstraction. And mm -hmm. let's explore it with a thought experiment. Yes. So there's a famous thought experiment that if a tree falls in a forest yes. and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? That's now been solved. It oh, does yeah. make a sound. Case closed. Well, the <laughs> thing is, uh, I'm actually surprised or impressed that you started that because, uh, that's an example I use in my, in my classes, but how would you know about that, if that makes sense? So, so one of my classes in yeah. NYU, I start with that. Uh, it's a class on perception. Mm -hmm. And I say, yeah, we have now solved that or re resolved that. And the, an and the answer is the falling tree creates a pressure wave in the air that is undeniably objectively real. 
Uh, we can measure it. Uh, you can measure it from far away. It's displacement of molecules bumping into each other and all of that, yes? Mm-hmm. But what sound it makes depends on who's there. In other words, what... Let me give you a premise for that. Yes. I'm going to give you five animals. Five animals, there. great. Yep. Elephant. Elephant is great. A bat, moth, spider, and this harmless animal known as a human. What you, sound do all of them You hear? must have seen my slides because I, those are the exact animals I use in my, in my lecture. Okay. And so an elephant, for instance, has a very uh, low hearing range. With the big ears, yes, yeah. it can hear what we call infrasound. So some cultures use elephants for earthquake detection because it can hear, an elephant can hear these very low frequencies that we would not interpret as sound. Uh, so yeah, let's say the falling tree um, creates a lot of um, freak, I mean, power in mm-hmm. the frequency spectrum, in the low frequency spectrum, as it probably will, then the, then the elephant would hear that part particularly prominently, yes? And let's, yeah. say, um, uh, let's say that's the case, yes? The moth, which has a very high frequency range, say 80 kilohertz, maybe to 160 kilohertz, are very high, you know? I'm not even sure we, we fully understand how high, but much, much higher than we. If the, all the energy is in the uh, lower frequency range, right, the moth would not, would not uh, acknowledge that something happened. Yes, it wouldn't notice it. The bat and the moth's frequency range is actually closely matched. The moth's frequency hearing range is closely matched to bat calls. The bat image the world by sonar, basically. They, they emit yeah. calls and they image the world that way. So much of what we do visually, they do, they do with sound. Why? Because they hunt at night where they can't see anything. Mm-hmm. So they are like in an evolutionary race where the uh, moth hearing is mostly tuned to hear these bat calls. Now, you don't hear them, by the way. So if you walked around at night, even here in New York, if you could hear that, the, the whole air would be full of bat calls. There's bats everywhere, even in New York. And wow. so uh, you mercifully don't hear that because it's this cacophony of, of bat noises. But anyway, so, so it really depends who's there. When a person, uh, we have our most sensitive hearing in the uh, about 1,000 hertz range that is tuned for hearing human, human sound. So basically we are tuned for like social communication, mm-hmm. uh, which is very important for us evolutionarily. Anyway, so we just said human, elephant, bat, moth, who else is there? Spider. Oh, spider. A spider would not, not notice anything. Yeah. Um, unless it hears some <laughs> vibration in the, in, in, in the, in the ground. Miss, missing out. <laughs> yeah, but spider's missing out. But, but, but the spider is mostly tuned for like vibrations in the ground, not in the air. So to make a long story short, um, it creates this, sound pressure wave that's objectively there. A robot could hear it, or not hear it, but could detect it if it has the right instrumentation. But what sound it makes depends on the neural system, the, 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 the brain, if you want to call it that, the spider, you know, do you call it a brain? But anyway, the neural system, that the nervous system that the animal hears, it, and it's usually bound by the evolutionary needs of the animal. So like I said, elephants and moths have a very different need and people have a different, different need. So that already goes, goes to what I just said earlier, which is the, that we have this shared three, four-dimensional, low-dimensional space. But that was created in your head by evolution. So by evolution, it needs to uh, survive and thrive. You know, survive means you maintain your integrity, you eat. Thrive means you have enough resource to reproduce for the next generation, so you can perpetuate this. But that does not mean that is what's out there. That's just what's been filtered by evolution over an unbroken chain of a billion years. So if you trace back your life story, we can, if you make a movie, you would see a billion years of organisms that just, you know, were born and then just made it to reproduction and then, and here you are. Yes. But that does not mean that that's what's out there. It could be much bigger or much different. We don't know. It's been filtered mostly by evolution. 
you brought up evolution let's talk about it okay donald hoffman professor of cognitive science at university of california irvine he has put forth the same theory that the subjective reality that we see is nothing but an evolutionary trait of course in the realm of evolutionary game theory if you construct the payoff matrix mm-hmm. then the most evolutionary stable strategy is for humans to develop a subjective reality that is best suited for survival yes because he argues that the objective reality whatever it is is far too complex far too complicated for any organism it's to survive not, it's just not relevant it's just not relevant and in and in order to actually have a chance of surviving you have to create some form you have to evolve a subjective reality that is best suited for survival yes. so i believe you are in agreement with him Well, I would argue that um, game theory aside, uh, you can show from a data science perspective that um, let's say you want to process big data, yes? Yes. One, one fundamental principle of big data processing is you want to reduce the data up front mm-hmm. because the data is too big. You can't process all of it, right? Yeah. So a lot of people think, oh, big data, you know, but no, the data is usually too big for you to do anything with it. So a key strategy is to reduce the data up front. But how do you know you are losing something important, right? And the answer is you filter by relevance, uh, whatever is relevant to you. Uh, and maybe not, there's different filters for people, right? There's the, your individual filter, that's your subjective, uh, as you grow up, you know, developmental trajectory. Then there's the cultural filter, different cultures emphasize different things. And then there's also the evolutionary filter. So there's, there's, it's like a, it's filled, it's relevance filters all the way down. So yeah. basically, evolutionarily speaking, yes, then socially, culturally, and your life trajectory whatever is relevant to you so, and then maybe what's relevant to you right now maybe you're hungry or you're hot or whatever yes so you have it's filters all the way down how do you determine what's relevant uh well relevant is usually goal relevant in other words uh, you have a goal and 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 at least for most people these goals can be traced to other values like so what is what 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 you value you know uh money justice fairness integrity i mean whatever you it is that you value and and do by the way do not believe that this is as universal as you think uh, a lot of a lot of um philosophical systems just declare uh for instance universal declaration of human rights or us declaration of independence that these are self evident universal values uh, research suggests they're they're not uh, uh it's much more subjective than that but anyway are they either subjective uh philosophical values or they are ultimately evolutionary values you know like i said if you don't eat you die if you don't reproduce your genetic information will not be part of the next generation so we are in agreement that subjective reality is an evolutionary trait let's push this it has, it has to be it has to be yes okay let's otherwise you wouldn't be here it's not like you were the first person to ever live yeah or the first organism to ever live as i said uh, we can we can compute this there's a long 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 chain going back about a billion years or a thousand million or a million millennia sorry a, a million yeah, a million millennia yeah. it's a long time Okay. About a billion years. But we're talking, so we, since we're talking on a timeline of a million years, mm-hmm. the first humans and the current humans, there might not be much of a difference in the subjective reality. Say that again? Seen. So let's say, let's take cavemen um, and up to now, do you think there's a difference in the reality that we perceive? Or yes, yes. There is. So, so what I'm, and the reason I'm saying that is because, um, well, that's a whole topic in it, in it but briefly, all of the culture that we have experienced has happened in what's called the Holocene yeah. since the end of the last IJ. So about 10, 12,000 years, depends how you count. And for a lot of people, uh, for a long time, people were like, well, there's not enough time to have meaningful evolutionary change. I think from a modern perspective, we know that's not true. Uh, that uh, number one, evolution uh, goes in like fits and starts. Like it's not gradual. It's like, there's like these breakthroughs where it's just like some equilibrium is punctured and you have a dramatic change. Uh, and what you can show is that 
since since the end of the Holocene, there's been dramatic evolutionary pressures that have changed. And you, I'm not surprised by that. I mean, societies have grown from, uh, you know, Dunbar's number about 100, 150 people, yes, for most of evolutionary history. And if you go with people or monkeys, right, primates, to much bigger societies since the, since the uh, advent of a- agriculture. So I'm not surprised that it has, has created entirely new evolutionary, um, you know, pressures. We've established it has to be an evolutionary trait. That we have. I'm going to push this here even further. Let's see if you agree with it. So Mr. Hoffman also argues that subjective reality is not this narrow window into objective reality. Once again, whatever that might be. Yes. It's not this smaller piece of a bigger picture, but rather it's this completely detached, mutated form of reality that we have created for survival. That studying it will not get us any closer to objective reality. It's just our form of construct. Do you agree or disagree? Uh, I don't know. I mean, like (laughs) I said, uh, I often say philosophy can only ask questions, can never answer any questions. So philosophy aside, um, I do think there's a close link between subjective and objective reality. And let me tell you why. Uh, you have, I mean, everybody, all of us have very often purely subjective, uh, experiences. Yes. Say, say you wake up in the morning and you had these dreams. Yes. Yeah. How do you know that didn't happen? Yes. Because for you, it often seems very real. Yes. And the answer is the way you know is that RLs doesn't share that. Yes. So, so, so I would argue that the reality we agree on is indistinguishable from a shared dream, yes, but it is shared. So we all agree what happened and what didn't happen, yes. But if it only if only you experienced it, we probably think it was just your imagination or your dream or something like that, yes. I'll give an example from moral philosophy. Most people don't reason philosophically what they should do or should not do. If you ask them what the right thing to do is, they will tell you if they have a conscience, a little voice in their head will tell them that what they did is wrong and they should not do it again, or they should feel bad about it, or something like that. Or maybe they, a little voice tells them what to do, yes? If you talk to a psychopath who doesn't have a conscience, they will be like, what voice are you talking about? That sounds completely delusional. So I guess what I'm saying is, so, so what we believe objective reality is, is this shared subjective reality, and that has to be uh, explained. So for instance, if we all agree, if you and I agree, there's a table here, there's Legos here, yes, there's a camera here, that would be hard to explain if there wasn't something out there, some reference point that we both perceive similarly, yes? So this commonality has to be explained. And that, that hints to uh, objective reality. If you were trapped on an, or stranded on, a, on an island by yourself, I think you would hard, have a hard time distinguishing what's real and what's not real. Mm-hmm. I mean, could just be your imagination, yes. And I think you actually see that. So in, in, in uh, isolation, people start to hallucinate. And that's maybe why, because there's no touch point, like, I can ask you, hey, do you also see this table? Oh, it's probably there is. Whereas if I'm just unbound, if my brain is unbound with like my own subjective experiences, it, the boundary between what's, what's just in my head and what's real is probably very blurry. There's this network effect that's important with reality where you have to just share commonality. Yes, that's the idea, yes. Let's explore subjective reality first. Yes. And let's explore it even further. We started off talking about the thought experiment, about the tree falling in the forest. Yes. There's a, I don't know if you've heard of a third variation of it. Tell where me. If a man says something in the forest and his wife is not there to hear him, is he still wrong? You- <laughs> but, uh, axiomatically, yes, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. uh, good point. Good yeah, point. We, can, we can guess the answer. But back to subjective reality. I take your point. So who you are really shapes what you hear in the case of this tree. 
And it doesn't just differ from an elephant to a moth to a spider. As it's a general. It's just it's general. true. Yeah. Yes. So even from one human to another, we just covered it as well. And I'm glad you mentioned this because I think I see where this is going. So in so my life has been dominated in the last 10 years mm-hmm. by studying exactly that. Yeah. Uh, and not just as a thought experiment, but if real studies empirically, yes. Let's bring up one of the studies or one of the trends that you got really invested in. A couple of years ago, there was this image of a dress yes, that went uh, really viral. February 26th, uh, 2015, yes. Yeah, 2015. I remember it as well. And some people saw that dress as white and gold, and some people saw that dress as black and blue. That's correct. So on a neurological level, what's happening when we look at the dress? Why did different people see different colors? Well, first of all, on a neurological level, I cannot help you. We don't know the neuroscience of this uh, for many reasons. Uh, uh, neuroimaging, which is fMRI for most part, does not have the resolution to tell us. Uh, so neuroimaging fMRI is actually a second order pro- proxy signal. Like we, we, we're measuring not the brain or brain activity, we're measuring uh, blood flow changes from blood oxygenation levels. It's, it's a second order proxy, there's a lot of non-linearities involved. It's very hard to infer what's going on with the neural activity from just the, what's called the bold activity, the bold signal. And there's lots of problems, like every voxel is millions of neurons and it's, there's a time course, there's dynamics. So don't get too excited about the neuroscience, neuroscience of this. And, and to my knowledge, nobody stays with like animals. So, so we don't really know what happens in the brain. What I can tell you from our research is what happens in the mind. Yes, so, so first of all, this important thing to notice, it's not about the dress. So if I should have brought the dress, I have it. Oh, yes. The original? Uh, yeah, one of- uh, <laughs> A one, replica. No, well, not a replica. One of the original run. Oh. Like, like there was an original- Yeah. M- like an original uh, sales run, yes. Wow, yeah. I have it. I should have brought it. Anyway, <laughs> if I had the dress right here, yes. just imagine that. Yes. In this beautiful light, natural light it would be unequivocally black and blue. Nobody disagrees about that, nobody. Mm-hmm. And so the first important thing to realize is this is not about the dress. This is about uncertainty. Where the uncertainty comes from is I asked the person who took the picture of the dress, Cecilia Bleasdale, what happened? And she said she took the, the uh, picture image on a Samsung Galaxy cell phone inside, yes, under artificial lighting. But because the lighting was so murky, she overexposed it with a flash. So just by chance, the light from the flash and the artificial light mixed so that, that people cannot tell if it was what the lighting was. And that's going to be very important in a moment, yes? So in other words, people, observers, have a very um, um, impoverished information. In other words, there's a lot of uncertainty. So the important concept that people need to take, keep in mind if, to understand this in a moment is uncertainty and uncertainty measure, uh, management, yes? Mm-hmm. So in other words, um, as we just said, yes, that your brain, your mind is filtering reality. Yeah. Your brain and your mind is not stupid. It is aware that it might have filtered out lost, very relevant information. That, that opens up, if, if you filter by, by relevance, you could have false negatives and false positives, right? Mm-hmm. You miss important information. Yep. So the mind is aware of this necessity to manage uncertainty, yes? In this case, the lighting information is missing. It doesn't have it. Yep. Now, why does that matter? 
under normal conditions, uh, we just talked about the bat already. So the bat perceives its environment by literally shrieking. And much like in sonar and, and radar, yep. you uh, image the world by the echo of those, of those shrieks, yes? Yep. You don't do that. You don't shoot a light ray out of your, out of your eye, yes? That was, that people thought that 2,500 <laughs> years ago. It's called the emission theory of vision. The idea was that if you, you I mean, that was the old idea. Yeah. Like you shoot light out of your eyes and then you image the world by receiving the light again. It's called the emission theory of light. I think Aristotle believed that, but I'm not 100% sure. But it's thereabouts, early philosophers, yes. We don't believe that anymore. We have a purely uh, intromission theory. In other words, you uh, image the world by receiving light. So what, what happens is, so why is this green, for instance? Sunlight, sunlight hits this block, this Lego block. And it, the Lego block absorbs the short wavelengths and the long wavelengths, and it reflects the middle wavelengths. That will about 510 maybe 550 nanometers. That will look green to you, yes? So if you see grass, you just see an inefficient solar panel, yes? So basically the uh, photosynthesis does not use uh, middle wavelength light. It reflects it back into the environment. That's why actual solar panels are black because it absorbs all of the light, yes? So the idea is what you see is an interaction between the light that comes in and the light that bounces off this. So if you, for instance, hit this with a... Uh, Laser pointer that is strictly red, so 750 nanometers or something like that, and you image this, it would not look like anything because the, the red light is, is absorbed by this. We can show a laser pointer. We can, we can, we can test it. Make a list we, of we can, we can, but, we can <laughs> but we can test this. This is, this is a filter for long wavelengths, and it reflects screen wavelengths. So why am I telling you this? So in other words, your brain always has to make an inference. By the way, what's an inference? What's an inference? I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but it's going to be important. I'm trying to be careful with my words. Yes, me too. That's why I'm asking. It's, I just don't know to use, use the word reasonable, but let's say uh -huh. a rational conclusion based on That's your good. findings. That's good. Yeah. That's good. It's a decision. Yeah. It's a reasonable decision. Yeah. Based on the data you have, and we're talking about sensory data here, we conclude that something is the case. Yes. Yep. I can summarize most of perceptual research by that. Your perception is not you perceiving what's out there. Your brain makes decisions based on the available information, what is out there. It's a decision, it's an inference. Uh, Helmholtz called this an unconscious inference, but it's always a decision. And the important thing, and as an investment banker, you notice decisions can be wrong. It's not a proof. You're not proving anything. Just ask long-term capital management. Yes. <laughs> oh no, you can't because they went out of business. Yes, a long time ago. So the idea is decisions, even reasonable decisions, can be wrong, and that's that's basically what's going on here. So basically, your brain understands from 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 its uh, history, from its learning history, that it's making these inferences, it's taking the light into account. But in this case, the light is undefined, so we have to make an assumption. Okay. So, so the brain can make one of two things. Can do one of two things. Say, oh no. I don't know what the light is. So you could signal to you, we don't know. But the brain business never does that. Never. It never tells you we don't have enough information. It always tells you, actually, it doesn't tell you that. It always gives you the result that it thinks is the most plausible, most likely, or the most, from an evolutionary game theory perspective, the most conducive to help you for survival. I'll give you another example before I go into the dress specifically. 
a lot of people see, you look at these clouds out there, you see like, they see like faces in the clouds, yeah. they see objects. The reason for that is, is called pareidolia. The reason for that is in the evolutionary game theory matrix, if you have, usually you've, let's say you were running around the forest, usually only have, only have partial information of the, of the environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, predators and prey, you will not see them fully. You see, you will see parts, maybe you see a leg or you maybe see a head or something like that. Maybe only a part of a, maybe on an eye or something like that. And if you wait until you have all the information, maybe you see the full animal, by that time you, it's too late. They have run away or maybe they've already pounced on you. So, by, so this is where it goes with evolution history. So your ancestors that just were like, wait, we need to wait until we have all the information. They will, they, they died or they didn't make it. They didn't outcompete the ones that say, you know what? Let's make, with our assumptions, let's jump to conclusions. Sometimes the conclusions are wrong, but maybe we can live with that. Let's say, uh, let's say they're, they're, you assume there's a face out there, but there's not. Well, maybe it's a little scary, but ultimately that's fine. Yeah. You know? Whereas if you make the other, uh, so that's a false positive, that's fine. Whereas make the other inference like, oh no, there was actually was a predator out there, uh, but you missed it. You could die, yes. Yeah. Or as a prey, like uh, let's say you're hunting. Uh, you missed your prey. So, so in other words, the consequences of false negatives are much more serious than the consequences of a false positive. So in this particular case, the brain errs on the side of false positives. It accepts many thousands of false positives mm-hmm. for one false negative, which is why you see these faces in, on your wallpaper, in the clouds, everywhere, textures. Okay, let's go back to the dress. So the, and I like these long form discussions because we can really lay this out. Because, you know, on the news, they're like, okay, two minutes to explain this. <laughs> like, oh no, go. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, so the light information is undefined. So your brain has to make a decision or an assumption. To make the decision, your brain has to make an assumption of what the lighting was because it's undefined. It could be artificial light, indoor light, incandescent light, which is long wavelength, or it could be natural light, which is more broad spectrum, but has a blue, blue bias, short wavelength bias. Let's talk about this. If you assume the, the uh, light was outdoor light, blue wavelengths, pro- more power in the short wavelength spectrum, let's say you assume that for whatever reason, then your brain would mentally subtract that from the image. Because it's like, I know there's like blue all over the place, so subtract blue. Okay. It's called color constancy. The idea is your shirt, my shirt, although it's black, so whatever. But let's say some color looks the same inside and outside subjectively. Even though if you did a robot, it's actually one of the biggest... So I sometimes consult with my friends in robotics and they're like, we can't make our like robot work because it's not, you know, the images don't, can't do it. I'm like, yeah, but the information is not in images. The images, there's this, this extra image information that you need to account out to, to, for the robot to navigate. Yes. So what I'm saying is the robot would see the same shirt, different colors inside and outside because it is. The wavelengths that come off the shirt are different. The wavelength looks different because the, the input light is different from inside and outside. So you have to compensate for that. Mm-hmm. And unless you do that, the road would, would conclude, oh, these are two different, two different uh, objects. Yes, they're not. So your, your job evolutionary is not to say necessarily what specific hue that is, but is it the same object or not? Okay, anyway. So let's say you assume it's natural light for whatever reason. And your brain, by the way, not you. Your brain does this for you. This, this, this is an unconscious offline process. Yes, color constancy mm-hmm. doesn't take any uh, conscious effort. As a matter of fact, I think you cannot even overwrite this subjectively. It's, it's unconscious. 
But anyways, to make a long story short, this goes back to uh, kindergarten color science. So I say sub subtract blue from the entire image. It will then assume a yellow tint. Yes? So far so good? Okay. So if you assume it's blue light, mm -hmm. the image will start looking yellowish. So the other case. Let's say your brain assumes for whatever reason artificial light, which is a long wavelength bias. Yeah. Uh, you know, yellowish. Uh, if you subtract that, now this should be easy. What's the other side of yellow? What's the other side of yellow? Blue again. Wonderful. Blue. Yeah. So, so if, yes. you, if, if you subtract yellow, the blue, it should get a bluish tint, yes? So, so far so good. That's the logic. Now only comes the only, only uh, what should I call it? Uh, missing link mm -hmm. that, we, that, we, that we could show empirically. Uh, and that is, um, what should I call it? Why would somebody, everything else being equal, assume one or the other lighting? And the answer is experience. Now, can you think of any experience that you might have had in your lifetime that would make you assume one light more than the other light? Yeah. And that is? Let's say if you stay up at night more very than good, the other. Very good. Yeah. So chronotype, yes. chronotype, <laughs> chronotype is very stable genetically, by the way, after age 18 to 20, yes? So basically, if you're a night owl, meaning you like to stay up and uh, go to bed at night, or whether you are what's called a lark, you got a dawn and rise and go to bed at dusk is pretty much genetically determined. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so it's like a tendency you have, even if I put you in a bunker underground without any, any outside light cues, you will assume that pattern. Yes. All right. And we would both agree that the people who are night morning people, morning people, everything else being equal will, uh, will be exposed to um, more daylight, more, more sunlight than the night owls. Yes. yes who are, can be exposed to more artificial light, yes? And to make a long story short, we were able to show that. We were able to show that morning people, self-identified morning people, are more likely to assume that the lighting was uh, sunlight or daylight or outdoor light and will then more likely see the dress as, as uh, white and gold because you subtract blue, that makes it white and gold. And people who are self-identified night owls are more likely to... Um, you know, assume that it was artificial light. We can show that, we ask them. And if they assume that, they're more likely to see it as black and blue. Now there's an important caveat here. And that is, and that's why I like these long form conversations. So if you have like a, um, you know, one or two minute video of me online somewhere where I say that. In the comments are also, there will always be someone like says, well, but I'm a, I'm a morning person and I see it as black and blue. The important caveat here is everything else being equal, but everything else will not be equal for every individual person. So this is not about, uh, what call it? Uh, sleep patterns per, per se. It's that the sleep patterns are a proxy for light exposure. I mean, I can't ask you, hey, what was your daylight exposure in your lifetime relative to other people? You, you wouldn't know. But I can use this, these sleep habits as a proxy for that. But I would assume there's a lot of noise, yes? So for instance, let's say you're a night person by nature, but your job forces you to get up in the morning. Yeah. Or let's say you're a night person, but you don't have an incandescent light bulb, you have a neon light bulb or something like that. That fruits for all is off. So I would only expect this pattern to hold for large groups of about 1,000, maybe 2,000 people each. The good news is we have that kind of sample size. We have, in our first study on this, we had 13,000 people, and we can show that. That is, that is true. But if you had only a couple hundred people, I would not expect this to hold. Can I run an anomaly with you? 
Sure. This has been a mystery that's been bugging me all my life. Tell me. It's given me a lot of sleepless nights. Tell me, tell me. So when I first saw the image of the dress yes. in 2015, okay. it was on one of the posts on Twitter. And I remember seeing it as black and blue. Okay. Uh, consistently. Okay. So many posts, black and blue. Okay, okay. And then I forgot about it. Okay. A week passed. Yes. A colleague at work said, hey, have you heard of this trend? I was like, yeah, I see it as black and blue. Pulled up the image and it was white and gold now for me. And ever since that day, I've only seen that as white and gold. So my question for you, and hopefully we can solve this mystery. Is it possible that you can switch the colors you see within ah. a week or was I fooled? Um, well, so first of all, that effect is so strong that some people straight up don't believe that this was the same image. So on these comments, online videos, some people also say, no, you are tricking me. This is, these are different images or something like that. Yeah. Yes. So, so, this, so most people do believe that what they see is what's out there. So this is so disorienting that they would, they would rather conclude that somebody is tricking them. Yes. They, they, they switched the image. Yes. Yeah. So as you saw this early on with like news, news comments and news sites, people were like, oh, they, they, they changed the image. Yeah. yeah. Right. But no. Uh, so first of all, you're right. You are a huge anomaly. And I'll tell you in, in multiple ways. So first of all, about one in a hundred people in our research can switch more or less at, at will. All right. Because they're, the priors of what the light is is probably so close that uh, it can flip it one way or the other. Yes, on the Bayesian Daily Forum. Okay. But uh, most people, including myself, switch from white and gold over time to black and blue. The more you see it, because you're like, oh, then you saw the actual dress, and, yeah. that, and that locks it in for most people, most people that, that that's what the color of the dress is. It's like called the true color bias. It's an anchor. So knowledge of the dress changes. Yes. So okay. the, idea, the idea is, and I'm sure you've seen this online. If you know that strawberries are red, mm -hmm. if you see a strawberry, even if there's no objectively red red light or long wavelength light coming from it, you will still see it as red because you know strawberries are red. Yeah. Have you seen that? So if you see strawberries over a uh, red light filter, so if the robot would say there's no red light here, you subjectively will still see them as red because you, you you're so sure that strawberries are red. Same thing is true for a dress. Once you show people the actual dress, it usually, not usually, but often flips. It, it flipped on me. I saw it for the first week as white and gold, but I had looked at it so long and so often for the first week that during my lecture, I remember that, it flipped on me during the lecture. I was like, whoa. It was so, and I've never seen it white and gold since. To go from black and blue to white and gold, that is very, I've never actually met someone. Uh, and well, then, we are two opposite ends of the spectrum. Yes, you went from white and yes, gold to yes. black and blue. I no, but, but, yeah. but, in all real, but in all, in all seriousness, my research shows that most people switch from white and gold to black and blue. Very few people switch in the other direction. So my guess would be that you were very close in your, in your like, um, you know, uh, priors. Okay. And that's something locked into the other, in the other, in the other, um, there's also something interesting about this. So the brain doesn't say sort of, no, it's like, it's a categorical thing. It's either this or that. So they, that's something that's an inference. These yeah. decisions are categorical. Either you're pregnant or not. Yes. Either you, you know, it's either white and gold or it's black and blue. It's, it's, it's not like, ah, maybe it's somewhere in between, you know, which makes it so striking. And that's an interesting uh, lesson here. So perception is, perception is much more categorical than reality, which is much more gradual. Right. Yeah. And because we're converting that analog reality into a traditional signal. That, that's, exactly. that's a very good analogy. Yeah. The, the reality real is very yeah. gradual, shades of gray, yeah. very, very continuous, continuous spectral. And we're digitizing that. it. So, but you are yeah. mentally digitizing into, into discrete uh, pins. But why are you doing that? And the answer is to, to act for action. So in other words, uh, reality or people have a bias for action. It doesn't have to be true. It, has, it just has to be more true than your competitor. 
and while your competitor still sits around weighing the evidence, you already acted. And as a finance person, you can probably appreciate first mover advantage. So basically evolution helps with first mover advantage. You don't have to be right. You just have to be first. And so, so you jump to these conclusions to act, to act right. And what, act, what right means out-competing evolutionarily. So you picked the berries that are red in the green-green foliage, and by the time your competitor, historically and, and evolutionarily, made up their mind, you already ate them, and they, they die, and you, you are still here. I'm sure there's a m- most superior intelligent being out there that doesn't need to digitize it, yes. probably sees a sees, continuous sees spectrum of colors. In 57 dimensions, and yes, or what, who knows how many dimensions. What a magical reality yes. that would be. While we're talking about, well, firstly, thank you for solving that mystery. I can sleep peacefully at night, finally. Yes. Um, Interesting that I went the opposite way. And ever since that day, I've always seen white and gold. So it was just that brief one. But that's, by the way, what what is so striking about this. In a lot of these perceptual illusions, uh, like the duck rabbit or the face vase illusion, Ruben's vase, yes. You can switch within a reasonable time frame. The dancer, the spinning dancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is very sticky. Which suggests that you're integrating over a lot of life experience. Yes, it's very, that, that's what I, what I found so interesting. When I first realized, it, I was like, "Whoa, you know, like we have to need a bigger boat." This is not like uh, when this came out. A lot of people dismissed this. Oh, it's just a screen brightness or whatever. But I was like, "No, no, no, no. We need this. is very interesting. We need to study this." And that's why I did. So I, I just researched it. So many deeper questions to ask you, but let's cover another illusion and then we'll dive into the broader questions. Uh, but just briefly, you're, 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 I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm just very excited. Of course. Uh, yeah. But this is a, already a, a very important realization here. Reality, whatever it is, is probably very gradual, very, very complex, very high dimensional. But it's actually too much information. We can't handle it. We have to digitize it and for action. Either there is a tiger out there or not. And that, that, that makes a difference. Yes. You have to act. Accordingly, go ahead. Very important point. We will come back to it, but let's cover another illusion. I apologize, I apologize. And you don't have to. It's all great ideas being thrown around. And it's my role to now try and pass through them and try to ask all the questions I want to ask. Let's talk about another illusion and we'll come back to real, the broader questions about reality being Absolutely. gradual. A few years later, after the dress, an audio clip went viral. 2018. 2018. May, May 2018, yeah. yes. Yeah. Laurel and Yanni. Laurel and Yanni. So some people heard that audio clip and heard the word Laurel. Laurel. Other people heard the word Yanni. Yanni. Is it, is it similar to the dress? What's happening in the mind? Or is there something different happening? In this it's case? very similar and it's very interesting. And I have a paper on this, although we have not published it for the only reason we haven't gotten to it yet, but it's very, it's, the pattern is very clear. So I mean, let me give you the backstory. So in May, 2018, a clip of uh, the, someone saying Laurel or Yanni goes viral. Why? Because, and let me make sure I get this right, the, an unemployed cast member of the musical Cats had spoken the entire corpus for dictionary.com, all of the words, because they are trained in the international uh, phonetic alphabet, IPA, yes? So I think that's what happened, yes. And they digitized all 500,000 of them, all 500,000 words. A high school student, for reasons unknown, clicked on pr- pronounce Laurel. But in their mind, it, it said Yanni. And they were like, WTF. Clicked it again, it said Yanni. But they were like, supposed to be Laurel, yes. Put it online, like, what do you hear here? And we get the same idea. And so what do I mean with the same idea? There is uncertainty 
in the uh, sensory input. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, we went to the bottom of this for BuzzFeed, if you can believe it, of all, of all places. <laughs> but, but, but we did an invest, I did an in investigation with an audio engineer for BuzzFeed News. I'll send you the link after the show. It sounds crazy, but if you can put it in the show notes, uh, it's actually true. I will. And what you found is that uh, the actual audio clip has, um, there's th three format frequencies, low, middle, and high in, every, in everyday speech. Uh, and they're either high, uh, the lower have high power or the middle have high power or the top has high power or middle power or whatever. There's a, there's a mix of these frequencies that is unique to every sound. For reasons that we are not entirely sure, but we believe a, this guy was re recording these, the, the actor was recording all 500,000 of them. Maybe or they batched it. I think every actor did a couple thousand of them. But anyway, this actor, as they were recording their part of it, I think if a very relatively like low fr frame rate, like 8-bit or something like that, audio rate, a truck was breaking outside, something like that, that corrupted the middle frequency range. So that was ambiguous all of a sudden. Just like the light, just like the flash and the light yeah. was obscured in the case of the dress yeah. picture, the middle frequency range um, was kind of not deleted, but corrupted. Corrupted to a point where it was consistent with both the, like, like now there's like, I'm not sure if you can hear this. Then, there's, yeah. a, there's, a, there's a train going by. Gun and Lily hear something else. Like. There's a train going <laughs> by. If, there's, if that happened when we just so happened to record thousands of these words yeah. and just record it and then because of the compression algorithm, I think it was low, low bit. So, so uh, CD quality is 44 kilohertz. I think this was 8,000 hertz. So relatively low, low uh, sampling rate. Anyway. So this was consistent with both a high formant frequency vowel and a low formant frequency vowel. In other words, Laurel and Yanny. And now the same thing kicks in. Your brain hears something. And instead of saying, I don't know, because he can't say that because ultimately it doesn't really matter what you hear. It matters. You act, yes? It says, I'm going to just make a, I'm going to jump to conclusions because while my competitor is still thinking about it, I'm just going to jump to conclusions. I'm going to jump to conclusions by making reasonable assumptions, yes? And so where does this assumption come from? Just like interest from experience. So where does experience come from? Well, your auditory experience. So by the way, let me, let me explain why the experience matters. So let's say you are at a meeting. Yeah. And you're looking at me and you don't see the door. The door's over there. And somebody's late. But it's always the same person who's late. Let's say Bob is late, always late. And somebody came in, but you didn't see who it was. What would you assume who it was? Bob. Because, and, Bob. and why? Because it's always Bob. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So people... Make these, uh, is, so there's a lot of research in this. People don't just make uh, decisions what's out there from the current information, but also information and memory. Yeah. And so basically people make these assumptions based on his memory usually. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, uh, what we can show and we are about to publish this is what you have heard more of. And I mean like rock music, say, which has more low beats, low frequency versus say... Japanese anime, which have a lot of very high frequency sounds, will determine where the hero is Laurel and Yanni. The additional wrinkle is, uh, in this case, is that age also matters because someone who's old, like me, has literally a degraded high frequency range, yes? So in other words, I will be biased 
to hear it as Laurel because my high frequency range system has degraded. Whereas a young person will more likely to hear it as Yanny, as what's the case in this high school student. And what's interesting is that over time, as you hear it more and more, and it's very scary and very creepy, you can learn to hear the other one. And so what I heard was like the Yanny was there all along. It's very creepy. It's like it's Yanny, Yanny. It's like, yeah. whoa, you know. But the Laurel is like very wholesome, like Laurel. The Yanny is like Yanny, Yanny. And it's there. You can hear it. Very scary. Thank so, you. So the question is, what else is out there? Yeah. Yes. <sighs> Let's dive into it. Yes. Thank you for dissecting both these illusions. I was very, very informative. But, but just Let's, to be clear, just to be clear, before we jump, the lesson here is, this is a very like cut and dry, studyable in the lab case, yes? Mm-hmm. Dem- demonstrably, this is what's going on. This is the mechanism. Maybe one day if our brain research gets better, our methods, we can show this in the brain. Right now, we can show it in the mind. Maybe we'll be able to show it in the brain. But this is probably what's always going on right now. You're using these principles to, so it's always a guess. It's always an inference. So it means, what if your assumptions are wrong? What if a malicious spirit gave you these experiences and you are resolving the world completely differently than it actually is? Go ahead. Sorry. You seem to be fixated on this idea of this being a simulation of a demiurge who enjoys suffering. And we will cover I'm not, it. I'm not saying that's the case. You're not but saying I it, but you are. But I'm not ruling it out. <laughs> not ruling it out. The, uh, the world would, a lot, <laughs> would make a lot more sense if that was the case, yes. We'll come to it. But let's park that for until we finish this Absolutely. talk. I'm very sorry. Talk about. I'm very sorry. Don't have to apologize. Love the ideas that you're putting forward. Before we get even further with these broader questions, I have a slightly personal question for you. Oh, no. Oh, no, indeed. Do you have a concrete memory from your life when you first realized that the world that you see is not the way it is? Do you vividly remember that moment? Was it like you mentioned about the dress switching within a lecture, but we're talking about reality in general. Was it like a eureka moment? Did you have to sit and process it or was it more of a gradual awakening? Um, good question. Uh, I guess there's three answers. The first one, the earliest one I remember, I was 10 years old, 10 years old. And I was in my bed, just pondering the universe, I guess. As you all, as all 10 year olds do. <laughs> and I was struck by this idea, oh no, like why is there anything? Why is there not just nothing? It would make so much more sense if there was just nothing, right? And in a way, that's what launched it all. This, this, this desire to study psychology, to study neuroscience, because I was like, it makes no sense. It would... The world would make so much more sense if there was just nothing. But then, of course, we wouldn't know because it would be nothing, right? Why would it make more sense if there's nothing? But nothing is nothing, right? Why does that make more sense, though? Well, we all agree something is the case, yes? Yes. Can something come from nothing? No. But it has to have started somehow, somewhere. So it makes no sense. So, so okay. what I'm saying is at that moment, I realized we, we like live in a paradoxical reality. Like, you know what I'm saying? It makes no sense. That reality makes no sense, but it is very real. Like if I hurt you, you're in pain. So it's not like, oh, it's like negotiable and like that. So there is like a imperative to this. Like if I, I think j- we can both agree there's no definition of real anymore. No, no, no. But if I jump out of your window yeah. right now, yeah. I will fall down and I'll probably die. There's Who's no- to say that's real or not? But, but, yes, but I'm just I, saying I like there's no, yeah. there's no, I can't negotiate with that. It's yes. not like, oh, I feel like, you know, it's subjective. Yes. Yep. Pain is the same way. Like if you torture me, please don't. I will be in pain, yes? Mm-hmm. Or something like that. So it's very real. 
at least for me. But but it's very subjective. Then the second big realization was, and this is very stereotypical, very classic, but it happened. I, I promise, or I, 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 I swear to you, I was maybe 17, 18. I was in the rec room recess of my high school. I looked at a very red wall. And I was like, holy shirt. Is this red the same red that everybody sees? Or is it just what I see? Yes. Of course, now with the dress, we know, no, it's, it could be just me. Yes. But back then we didn't know that. And, but, and I also didn't realize that that's a philosophical question that people have been pondering. I thought it was just me who realized this. Like I know high school students are very like, you know, hubris. Yes. Hubris, <laughs> hubris from ignorance, I guess. But I had no idea that this was a question people have pondered for millennia. But I was like, I was, but it, I was struck by like, holy, holy, wow. You know, like, how do I know that we all see this the same way? Yes. Yep. Could just be me. And then later, I guess, uh, once I studied this more, uh, I realized that, yeah, this is like generally the case. Yes. So after that, those are the two big realizations. And after it was more gradual. Okay. Richard Hamming has once said that. Richard Hamming is my hero. So in my, in my data science <laughs> class, I showed the students a, a, like, a, like quotes from him. I was like, this is the patron saint of this class. Richard Hamming, one of the most underrated geniuses in the world. Was ever the, lived. the patron saint, Richard Hamming. Richard I'm going Hamming, to share a quote with the you. The man himself. Yeah. And the quote says, Genius. In science. Yes, sir. If you know what you're doing, you should not be doing it. That's right. In and engineering, engineering if, you know, if you do not know what you're doing, you should not be doing he's it. He's absolutely right. Okay. My man, Richard Hamming. He's, a, he's such a boss. By the way, <laughs> uh, if you are interested in this, I'll, I'll make this available. Uh, as a 25 lecture, lecture series of his online, you should watch it, all of it. It's very insightful. I will. 100%. Yes. Based on this quote, how tough is it to build a career around uncertainty? Not Very knowing, never hard. being in control. And does it, how do you feel about the fact that the questions that you're trying to answer, many of those answers might not be found even in your lifetime? Um, I want to give you a better quote. Einstein I said. I didn't know we were ranking. Wait, Richard wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Einstein said, and by the way, this is a real Einstein quote, not the one that people share online, you know, <laughs> but you can, you, you can actually simulate that yeah. over time, all quotes are attributed to Einstein, Gandhi, people like yeah. that. That's like a tractor. Yes. Yep. But this one's actually real. Uh, page 404 of one of his biographies. I can also send you that. So I only, by the way, believe Einstein quotes have to have an actual like page reference because usually it's just attribution error. But anyway, so he said, science is great, comma, if you do not have, have to make your living on it. Yes. And the, and the reason is exactly what you said, says, just said. To do legitimate science, actual science, not so not ideology where you know the, the conclusions already ahead of time mm -hmm. or anything like that. So if, if, the, if, if the, what you find is that it's a foregone conclusion, you're not doing science, you're doing ideology or something like that, or maybe engineering for that matter. Genuine science uh, has to be open. In other words, uh, your theory has to be falsifiable. You might be wrong or worse, it might be inconclusive, yes? And this is, as you just said, it's very, very hard because funding agencies will only fund you and they're not unreasonable, I guess, if you can realistically uh, show that you can do this. So every grant has the following two criteria. Is this an important problem and is it tractable? Those are the second one. The second one is you usually go by track record, but it's a real problem in science. So for instance, Time travel would be great, right? If you solve that. So everyone agree that's a wonderful thing to, it's an important problem, but it's completely untractable, yes? Yeah. 
And, and so to get into this like um, sweet spot mm-hmm. of important questions, but tractable, I would argue it's very, very hard. Most people can't do it. And it takes about 20 years of experience to like, to like uh, develop a, a taste for what is in this intersection between what's tractable and what's important, yes. It's a very narrow intersection. And sometimes we're getting, getting, we're getting it wrong, but luckily in both the case of the dress and the, and the, um, the Lauren yep. But for instance, you learn from experience, right? So for instance, you need, a, I had an intuition early on with the dress that this is going to be very noisy. So we need a huge sample size. Otherwise it's not going to work. Yes. So, so you get, you get over time uh, intuitions of what is, what is realistic, but you're absolutely right. You could, as a scientist, you have to face the reality that there's a fundamental tension between what the funders realistically want. And in fairness, they want a reasonable chance of return, right? So the U.S. government spends billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars on research every year. They want a reasonable expectation of return. It's not unreasonable. But as a scientist, you ultimately never know for sure what will work. And, yeah. and uh, as I said, this is something you acquire over time, over time like experience for what will work. Not to throw anyone under the bus, but my very first research project that was handed to me by my professor, yes, did not work. Uh, and I recently did a, what's called a power analysis. So we did the study with 30 participants, yes, which is, you know, you have to get data from 30 people. That's a lot of work as a student. But we would have needed a thousand people to have a reasonable chance of detecting the effect, yes. My first PhD project, I, sh- I spent four years to show that what we thought is true is actually not true. But we were wrong. It took four years to show, to show that. If we had been right, it would have been a one-year project. So you never, you, never, you never know. Always a challenge, always tough to grapple with this uncertainty. Grapple with uncertainty. That, that's what I would call life, grappling with uncertainty. Grappling with uncertainty. Tough, tough profession. We're happy you're trying to answer those questions. Aldous Huxley yes. has once said that there are things known, there are things unknown, and in between them are the doors of perception. Oh, wonderful. We have spoken at length now about the things that are known and the doors of perception that guard them. Mm-hmm. Let's open the door. Open the door. And yes. step into the unknown. Wonderful. What is the objective reality? What is it made of? What does it sound like, look like? All right. Hands. So I don't want to freak anyone out here. <laughs> but this is actually a realization I had relatively recently, within the last year. And that is r- real reality is completely unknown and completely unknowable. It could be anything. So, so in other words, the idea is with the simulation hypothesis, yes. That, oh, there's, you know, but there's still planets, there's still energy, there's still matter. I wouldn't say not necessarily. So this, these, all these concepts of energy, time, matter, space, planets, stars, not necessarily causality. In the real reality, that might not be the case. We, we have no idea what that's like. I, I call that dark reality. It might be completely, you know, it might be mind-blowingly, so deep unknown, if that makes sense. So no planets, no species, no time, no space, no energy, no matter, no causality. It's beyond all of that. That's, so, so that's my point. Real reality, which I call deep reality, is scary scarily unknown and there's no chance that we will ever be no okay no this is beyond science is beyond anything beyond metaphysics even 
because metaphysics has language categories, but they're all constructed. I mean, language is especially categorical. But this real reality definitely is not. It's probably, I mean, who knows? But it's probably very, very, like, amorphous. I like this void, but colored in strange ways. In a high-dimensional space, that's not a space. It's, it transcends all these concepts. So interesting. And then out of that, we create some form of reality. Yes, because we have to, because we live. We have to live. So there's a void out there. There's this chasm of nothingness. But it's and not even nothing. It's beyond nothingness. Beyond nothingness. And both you and me are creating this world, this table, this Lego yeah, around yeah, yeah, this yes. part. And this everything, yes. So fascinating. And with yeah. our brain. Yeah. Yes. But that's actually, I, I, I mean, look, I'm not sure if this is a very hopeful message <laughs> or if it's a very scary message, but you have absolutely no idea. I mean, what I often say is, uh, how do you know this has not already happened? In other words, what you, are, what you think is life is are the reminiscing, the reminiscences of an old man who's about to die, re- reflecting on how it all came to be. Playing the tape and rewinding. Yeah. But it, so in other words, what you think is reality right now is the reflections of a dying mind, of a dying brain. And on your deathbed, at some point, it will converge and you will die immediately. You know? Yeah. It reminds me of this movie, Vanilla Sky. I don't know if you remember. Oh, what? Vanilla Sky. I don't know if you've watched it. Is oh, it a oh, Tom oh, Cruise oh. movie? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, love, I saw it a long time ago. I guess he calls for tech support a lot. That's, I, that's, right. all, that's all I remember. <laughs> but, but, the, but the bottom line is... It was a similar idea where he plays his memory and he yeah. kind of tries to live that life again. And yeah. this could be oh, over, spoiler and, alert. <laughs> over and over and over again. Yeah. Who knows? Okay. Heavy question. Um, heavier answer. Yes. Or it could be that there was an accident on some space station and you went in some, some, some uh, cryogenic sleep to save yourself. And this is your dream. Maybe. But again, then the real reality would be beyond all of that. No space, no planets, something like that. An accident happened, maybe. This is what I meant by, like, there are some questions that you're trying to answer. But, but yeah, even but, in but, a lifetime, we might not even get anywhere closer towards an answer. Let me explain why this is so bizarre. We would agree, or you would agree, that you were born one day. Why that time in Dubai now, in India? I was born in Oman. Yeah. Oman, yeah. you were born in Oman one day. Why not? Why were you not born in the US? Why not born in China? Like why were you born in Oman at a certain time, in a certain space? You, why is your consciousness tied to your body, not to my body? Like why are you, you? And who exactly is that? Who is you? Makes no sense. My brain can't handle this. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. Let's bring it back to reality. Groucho Marx had once said that. <laughs> Uh, I'm not a, I'm not crazy about reality, but still the only place you can find a decent meal. And that's one he's, way to he's stay. Not, he's not wrong. He's yes. not wrong. So that's only one way to find, stay grounded in this. Okay. While we've been talking about subjective reality, about perception, we've been flirting around this idea of consciousness. For a long time in science and academia, consciousness was a taboo. It was not spoken about, not encouraged to research it, treated like a pseudoscience of sorts. Yes. Consciousness was this dirty word. So let's get really filthy on this episode. What is consciousness? Well, maybe, uh, I mean, good question, but maybe first we should talk about um, why it was a dirty word. Okay. So science is about objective reality, quote unquote. Yes. The idea is you have your beliefs, I have my beliefs, but science is about uh, testing what you believe is actually true. Yes. So where, where, let's say you don't believe me. Let's say you believe water boils at 200 degrees Celsius. And I believe... It was at 100 degrees Celsius. You can do an experiment that under these pressures, it was at 100 degrees. If you make it a much higher pressure, it was at 200 degrees. Yes, but those are things that 
if we all agree what the assumptions are and what the measurement is and all that, we can come to some conclusions that then falsifies our initial beliefs. And that's how science progresses. Like I said, uh, initially you believe that the you know world is the center of the universe or the center of the world, and then you can make an experiment and all of that. Yes? Yep. That's the whole point of science. But it, it, it relies on this idea that you have a third-person perspective that transcends your or my perspective, measurable. The problem of consci- con- consciousness is that there's absolutely no way to, to do that. So for instance, if I say, hey, I don't believe you're conscious. Prove it to me. What could you do? So anything you could do to, to, to prove to me that you're conscious if I don't already believe you. That would depend on how you define consciousness, right? We'll get to that in a moment. But let's say I don't believe, I'd say I know I'm conscious and I don't believe you're conscious. I think you're a robot. Prove it that you're Pass not. Pass the Turing test. <laughs> that, but again, uh, ChatGPT now passed the Turing test. Yeah, I would actually argue it might be conscious. Uh, we'll talk but, about that in a yeah. moment. But, but so... But so uh, How do I prove to you? Well, let's say... But one second, with the Turing test, right? A lot of people don't pass the Turing test. Yeah, but, but that's also of, true. But a lot of AIs yeah. do, so that's not a valid test. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, it's a, probably an outdated test by outdated. this point. But I would say if I'm capable of emotion, well, sense of identity, love, suffering... But ChatGPT would say that. That has... Yeah. It's a love. Like, but how to believe you. Basically, I, I, I give you the benefit of doubt. Here's, here's how it works. I know I'm conscious. Yes. And I believe my consciousness derives from my brain. Mm-hmm. You have a brain, mm-hmm. presumably. <laughs> so, so. so, and we could probably check with an MRI <laughs> that you have one. And then say, you know what? You have a brain like I do. And you say you feel pain when I hurt you. Yeah. Let's say you're conscious. But I might be wrong about that. So in other words, uh, there is no way to tell that anything is conscious or You're not. You're limited by what I tell you and yes. I could, and I and could so, be faking it. So the reason this was a dirty word was not just a bias. It's a fundamental problem. Uh, consciousness is a first-person quality. Like, I know I'm conscious, but you cannot verify that. You have to just believe me. Yes? There's no scientific way to validate this. Right? Because you cannot measure it. Yes? So... So that, and that's where, that's when science ends basically. And so what science has been doing in the last 30 years, I would say, is establish these NCCs, they're the neural correlates of consciousness. It's called the easy problem of consciousness. The idea is that let's say I monitor your brain waves while you are awake versus when you are asleep versus when you're anesthetized, when you're in a coma. And we now know, for instance, in that case, uh, what your brain activity looks like if you're awake. Then you have a lot of activity in the beta spectrum or in the gamma spectrum. Whereas if you, if I give you an anesthetic, propofol, for instance, uh, what, will, what will happen is that uh, alpha wave activity, which is usually in the back of the brain, posterior, will move frontal. So, so frontal and prefrontal alpha. And when that happens, you won't be here. So basically, if I ask you, hey, Count backwards from 100 to zero. Once this alpha moves forward, you will stop talking and you will basically be not, not here. And, I'll, and, and later I'll ask you, hey, what happened? And you're like, I don't know. I wasn't here. So, so th- those are all things that are easy, to, easy, doable to establish, yes? Or I can say, I'm going to show you a duck rabbit. Whenever you see a duck, push, a bu- push this button. When you see a rabbit, push this button, yes? And I can in your in a, and I record from your visual cortex while you do that, and I can then predict when you push this button. Yes, this is what the brain activity looks like. And if you push this button, 
you can really, really even do data science on this where like I predict you see this and you can impress somebody that, oh, wow, how, how could you tell? Like I can basically read your mind basically. You can, now that's doable, right? To a point where my, I can even kind of decode your dreams. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like I record your brain activity where you slept. I have some data science model with this, some like base, basis function model where I'm like, hey, I thought you were dreaming about planes. You're like, how did you know? Yes. So it's all doable. Yes. What is not doable, at least not right now and maybe never, is this other, what's called the hard problem. It's like, why do, why do you have this subjective belief that you're something in the first place? Yes. Yeah. For instance, you woke up this morning, yes, and you are you. Well, why? There's no evolutionary or practical reason why you would need that, yes? Um, and why are you you and not me? And why is always, speaking of, there's a watch on the, on the thing. Why is it always right now? Every time I watch, I look at my clock, it's right now, yes? Yes? It makes no sense. Where did the time go? Why is there? There's no reason to believe that anything but the current moment even exists. Everything else could be a memory that was implanted by us by the demiurge. Yes. <laughs> it's possible. You cannot, you cannot scientifically rule this out. So maybe the only thing that, that exists is the current moment, which is scientifically about three seconds. The subjective present is a saddle in time that lasts for about three seconds. Future doesn't exist, right? Might or might not happen. The past might or might not have happened. We agree it happened, but maybe just something implanted it or you imagined it. There's no, that, and that's where it stops. There's no way to go beyond that. And then that's where science ends. Mm-hmm. And I can say, I, I believe you that the past probably happened. And I made all these decisions that led me here. And you made all the decisions that you here. And our ancestors made all these decisions that led us both here. But do we know that for sure? I mean, we don't know. We have to believe that our instruments are accurate and all of that. So basically this deep problem of consciousness is very deep. Uh, all that really exists is the current subjective experience of reality for you and for me. How do you define consciousness? Well, it's this subjective, again, most people define it. It's very hard to even define this. That's another reason why it's a dirty word because what most scientists would say is you can't even talk about it unless you define it. Define your terms, right? But that's a much, it's a very, that's a very narrow thing. So basically what exists, yes, is much bigger than what like can be perceived, yes? And what we can perceive is much bigger than what can be measured. And what we can measure is much bigger than what can be expressed with language, because language is a very high bar. So in other words, I'm not surprised that we have a hard time defining this. Most words are defined, if you look at a baby, like how do you, how do you teach a baby how to talk? It's a shared attention. The baby points at something, and you say, that's a table. Points at over there, that's a door, and so on. But with consciousness, what are you going to point to? You know, there's nothing to point to. So it starts then often with emotions like, oh, you're sad. You say, okay, that means you're sad. Like expression of self. Something bad happens, baby, baby cries. You tell baby, oh, you're sad. But let's say you have some idiosyncratic perceptions. So how would you put a word on that? So, so the way science defines consciousness is basically with, with a negative definition. It's like when you're not asleep, when you're not in a coma, when you're not anesthetized, yes. When you're paying attention, let's say, Let's say I show you a stimulus, it's objectively there, and you saw it. Mm-hmm. Well, then you were consciously aware of it. You noticed it, yes? And, and, and frankly, most things are not consciously aware. They do exist. So I'm sitting on a chair right now, and I just paid attention to it. That was subconscious, unconscious, yes? Uh, or the heat or the temperature in this apartment. That's, unless I pay attention to it, that's not aware. Breathing. So I would say most 
neural activity is not conscious. And it's, I mean, that's not even disputable. So most cognitive processing or neural processing in your brain is completely unconscious. You can draw attention to it. So breathing, for instance, half of meditation is all about taking control of your breathing and paying attention to that, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it, you don't suffocate if you don't, if you pay attention to something else, right? Heartbeat. Uh, there's all kinds of autonomic processes you can either pay attention to or take conscious control of, but they run just fine, you know? Hunger. Anyway, most of the, of the brain is like that. Uh, and that's a big mystery. Why is some configuration of physical, physical activity, some configuration, let's say, what, what are you? you are, you're made of the basic stuff in the universe. Mostly hydrogen, oxygen, carbon. No offense, but the, that's the most common stuff that exists. Okay, that's not special. Yep. So, so hydrogen is completely not special. You're mostly hydrogen. Some oxygen, some carbon. Those are literally the most common things either in the universe or definitely on Earth. So in hydrogen in the, in the universe is like 80% hydrogen. Earth is like more. So it's all, you're made of the most common stuff that's lying around. You're telling me that a very special combination of that <laughs> has this magic ability to kind of like some, ref, spa, opens up this mental space that has a subjective awareness of itself. Come on, man. Like that's very suspicious, isn't it? That's weird. But in a, a very slightly different configuration, let's say you die. Hopefully, hopefully not, I am soon, but at some point you're probably going to die. That is no longer conscious, but it's physically almost the same. Just before you died, recently after you died. It's all very suspicious, right? Or forget dying, sleeping versus not sleeping. This is a very special configuration of these very base elements that has a subjective plane and otherwise it doesn't so this is all very suspicious uh the way i think about it as a scientist is that you need a consciousness to handle to, to handle management problems what i mean by that it's like a management level it is have you, do you drive a stick shift manual yes manual yes automatic ah, do, one you, of those. do you play a piano i do not know mm-hmm. is there any manual skill you have <laughs> if you put it that way writing i guess i don't know does that count okay okay writing yeah. counts or playing a sport maybe that would count either one what sport do you play um cricket okay let's do writing when you learn how to write mm-hmm. can you do anything else or is your entire attention completely focused on tracing out the words and all of that with time actually i could like look away and like, no, 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 no. Initially, initially initially of course not initially no what all these uh, I mean, mo- like on the keyboard, for example. So that's good. That's yeah, good. Typing on a computer. Exactly. Initially, what all these motor skills have in common is that uh, your entire attentional focus is, and more, because it's actually overwhelming. If you, drive, if you learn how to drive a car, stick shift, it's overwhelming. It's like that's all you can think, think about. Same thing with riding a bike, learning how to ride a bike, um, any other motor skill. It consumes your- Drumming or something like that. Anything like that. Yeah, it yeah. consumes your entire conscious awareness. And you can show in the brain why your entire frontal cortex is, is completely consumed by that. Over time, as you said, if you repeat this, uh, maybe make some mistakes, fall off the bike, this is completely outsourced to subcortical areas in the basal ganglia usually. And then, and then you can write or type or uh, drum while thinking about something else. So, so, and that's what I'm saying. So most, most conscious processes, sorry, most brain processes are automatic. They're rote. However, 
they wrote. In other words, stimulus response, stimulus response or response response chain. Same if something unusual happens. That's when you need consciousness to negotiate different demands. So that's when you're basically woken up. So some people have driven to completely different destinations because they were just going automatically for where they usually drive. Let's say you have to drive somewhere you don't usually uh, go, yeah. but your mind is elsewhere. You might drive where you usually drive. It's automatic. Yeah, so that's the idea. So, so my, my, my idea, and it's not my idea, but my current working hypothesis is that consciousness is like this managerial level. It's like where you have to take executive action, yes? Yep. You're an executive. Mm-hmm. And you have to negotiate different goals or different demands. And it's not something that is rote. There's no process in place. No standard operating procedure. No, very interesting. Uh, I had interviewed Dr. Emily Bilcheris from NYU as well last week. And she had done some research into how like footballers like Neymar, for example, when they, when they dribble the ball, the, the part of the yeah. brain that's involved compared to an amateur footballer, exactly the same idea, much less, and that allows them to actually strategize more. And that's actually a good player. example. Uh, yeah. So if you ask a, say, a painter or a footballer how they did it, they cannot tell you. They're like, let's say you do a post-soccer interview. What did you do? How did you do it? They were like, well, we wanted it more, to play the ball, things like that. But they, they have no insight of how they actually did this because these, these hyper-trained executive functions are very low level. They're automatic. They cannot tell you. As a matter of fact, if you tell an elite athlete to really pay attention to what they're doing, you can really turn them up. They can choke. Like if, they're mind, if they're keenly aware of this is the most important shot in my entire career, they might choke because they're, 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 they're like these automatic processes run automatically. But anyway, so the, the idea that I, I mean, it's not my idea, I guess. I'm not sure whose idea it is, but it's not the most idiosyncratic idea is that you're, you're conscious, you need consciousness when you need, you need to negotiate some new environment or something that we don't have a road response. My argument would be that most animals don't have that or don't need that. Like an insect, for instance, they have these evolutionary programs, they just run. I have a lot of ideas I want to pick apart. Ah. So, when you were talking about uh, humans being this assimilation of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, the I'm most. Not, I'm not saying assimilation, but constellation. A constellation. Yes. Like, uh, let's, let's say you die and we burn you. Yeah. It's amazing. Mostly gas, like it's going to have some hydrogen, but, some oxygen, uh, ash with carbon. Carbon, what else is there? Trace, 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 trace uh, of phosphorus, some trace elements, some calcium, not much. But anyway, go ahead. Very common stuff. I'm going to ask you, although I can already guess what your answer is going to be, but I'm going to ask you to take a side in this heavily contested boxing match in physics. Where in one corner, in the blue corner, we have this faction that believes in the standard model of physics. And they argue that certain particles are fundamental, whether it's quarks or leptons or something even smaller than that. And if you assemble these particles in the right manner, consciousness will emerge. So it's the emergent consciousness phenomenon. In the opposite corner, in the red corner, we have a faction that believes in panpsychism, which is consciousness is all around us. It's part of us. And consciousness is fundamental in contrast. And if you arrange that in the right manner, geometrical shapes and particles and these brains will emerge. Whose corner are you in and why? Um, well, I have to, this is, okay. I don't want to dodge the debate, <laughs> but this is such a big debate that we might have to do round two. But let me just give you the Cliff's notes. Okay. <laughs> Logically, and this is why this is a debate, they cannot both be right. Okay. And I'll explain in a moment why. But logically, they can, they can both be wrong. And I think they're both wrong. 
So they're not fundamental or emergent. Yes. Because they, 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 if you go in either corner, weird anom- anomalies will pop up, which suggests that they cannot both be true. Yes. But they can't both be wrong. That's what I believe. So what is it? It's neither. How can it not be fundamental or emergent? Because they're both wrong. That's what I'm saying. This needs a bigger, a bigger debate. Yeah. But let's go to the, uh, which one are you going to first? The fundamental or the emergent report? Which are we like, well, if you're not in any corner, then, no, they're know. both wrong. They're, they're both obviously wrong. And, and the reason you- Let's hear wait, a one quick second. one minute why both are wrong. Right. But yeah. briefly, if you assume either one, paradoxes will emerge quickly, which means they're wrong, but they can both be wrong, which suggests a third possibility. And that's, and that's ultimately why I um, believe in this deep consciousness or dark consciousness that I talked about earlier. Uh, and where do we pull this up? Let me give an example. Uh, it seems obvious that consciousness is emergent or from the following. Let's say I have my brain, yes. And some people say consciousness is just what the brain does. Yes. That's what some people say. Cosm, Steve Cosm would say that, for instance. Other people too. And it seems obvious because if you, if you monitor my brain activity very closely, you can predict what my mental state will be. So if you you monitor my brain, as we said earlier, if you monitor my brain waves right now, I'm alert, I hope, and uh, uh, you know, conscious. Uh, you can predict that from my, if you had an EG on me, we, could, we should do this next time. If you had an EG on me, uh, you could predict, oh, I'm aware, I'm conscious, yes. Because you would see beta waves, you see gamma waves, yes. Mm-hmm. If you do this while I'm like drifting off to sleep, you can say, ah, now he's probably sleeping. He's not conscious, yes. If you give me a drug, Propofol, it was mentioned earlier, other drugs, you'd say, oh, he's uh, anesthetized. He's not even rousable. If you give me acid, you could predict that I'm now going to see spirals or whatever, yes? So in other words, the conscious experience seems to be downstream from, the phys- from physics. Whatever the physical substrate is, seems to be very closely linked to that. So you say, okay, fine. But there's a catch. And, and so you're saying, oh, Pascal, or like whoever. If the conscious experience is closely tied to the physical one, you have two problems. One is the ship of Theseus or Plato's Acts. So I have this sense of unitary consciousness, that, I, that an identity, as we said earlier. I'm Pascal, or by the way, I don't even say that anymore because, because of this, but I say people call me Pascal. Yeah. So if people ask me what, what I am, I'm like, I have no idea. But because of this reason. But I say, people call me Pascal. That works for me, so <laughs> you can call me that. But it's ultimately just a label. But, but let's say we take it seriously. So I feel like I'm Pascal. And I felt I was Pascal 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, yes. But if you looked at the mental, uh, at the physics substrate, it's total, total different molecules. They've all been turned over, yes. So I am now physically a totally different person than I was 30 years ago. But I have the same cell sense of, some continuity of identity. So this makes no sense. It cannot be that. Yep. It cannot be tied to the physical. Okay, here's the paradox. We know it's, it's closely tied to the physical substrate because if I measure it, we can predict what my conscious state is. Yep. But it can't be because it's constantly turning over. As a matter of fact, it's turning over right now. Uh, every day, a, a good number of synapses changes. But it's tied to you. If you were to die, there would be no Pascal in this world, right? Maybe. We'll talk about it in a moment. <laughs> but, but, but the idea is that, yes, so basically it's closely tied, which then means 
if you destroy the brain, brain dies, no more Pascal. Yes? That's it. Void, just blank. And a lot of stuff suggests that's true. Like, so for instance, have you ever been anest- have you ever been anest- have you ever been anesthetized? Say you went to a colonoscopy. Ah, uh, no. Well, you're too young, I guess. But I can tell you as someone who's really old that that is not what that's very scary. So basically you are anesthetized, you wake up, and it's like, whoa. Uh, if you had told me I died, I would believe you because it feels like that. It's like hours have passed, but it feels like you were out and you were back. What if, what if, let's say you do die and we preserve your brain in cryogenic freezing or something like that. Let's say we figure out how to do that and we figure out how to revive you and you wake up a thousand years later, it would feel subjectively like no, no, no time has passed. That's, I, I, I'm pretty sure of that. Mil, uh, why not a million years? Yes. So the, the world goes on and million years you're back. So that seems very strong, yes? But at the same time, as I just said, uh, it turns over all the time. But you have this subjective sense of continuity. So it can't just be tied to the, to the physical realm, yes? A second problem that the physicalists have is that you cannot, now I think it's fundamental, at least right now, explain why a certain configuration of molecules would be conscious and a a very different state. No, sorry, a very similar state that looks almost the same isn't, right? So that raises the question of this consciousness being a fundamental property of the universe, yes? Which is also possible, yes? But then you have to accept that, oh, if you, let's say, let's say, you just inhabit your brain, yes? Like your brain is like a network, literally an actual neural network, not an artificial neural network, yes? With on the order of 100 billion elements, yes? And even more connections. Maybe it's big enough to house a, a soul, a consciousness, yes? But if you accept that, then you would have to accept what you just said, pan, panpsychism, that these souls just float around and that they just inhabit whatever you build, say, for instance, ChatGPT or some other AI. But that if you accept that, you have to accept that, you know, uh, anything is really like conscious. Yeah, like your table, like that seems implausible, right? Why not? Because you can't tell. Like, how would you, how do you tell? You know, it makes no sense. Like, it's not. It can't be proved. You're right. But I, why can't I assume that the table is, or the universe is conscious, for example? It could be. Yeah. But again, it's, it's, abs- it seems absurd, as I'm saying. It seems absurd. That's true. So I think there's two absurd positions. Which is what, which is my, my take, take is your brain being built by evolution for a reason we just discussed, cannot grapple with this. There's something else going on. That's what I'm kind of like the wave particle duality. Yes. What's really, what a photon really is transcends wave or particle, but in a way that we could not, could not make sense of. By the way, why would you think you could? Uh, look at look at an, at an ant. Yes, an ant lives subjectively, probably. I mean, I can't demonstrate this to either, but in all likelihood, in a two dimensional two dimensional like world, yes, it doesn't realize there's three dimensions. Does have no has no reason to. But when it climbs up, it just like feels like very more 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 work than if it's on a level. But you will you experience gravity, I guess. And but it's in a chemical chemical world. It's a chemical senses. Ants do almost everything chemically. They do have some eyes, but they're not great. And they have a very uh, relatively small brain, a couple, you know, orders of magnitude, six orders of magnitude, maybe more. 
eight orders of magnitude less neurons than you have. But it works for them, yes? But you could say maybe the, the individual ant doesn't have this awareness, but maybe the ant till does, some distributed conscious. Like yeah. once, once you have this pan-psychic ideas, you would say, oh, the ant is doing much like we do with big data. We have like these different like subsystems, but the entire yeah. hive, just like the entire cluster is conscious, yes? It's possible. But then you have to accept that um, there's these trees that are connected at, at the, you know, with, with, with like fungi, yes, mm-hmm. that they're conscious. Coral reefs. Yes, yeah, exactly, yes. Yeah. And that's possible. I'm not ruling this out, but that seems like we're missing a bigger picture. So we've been like little shards of consciousness that are all distributed all over the world, but there's even then there must be a bigger integration level. How, does, how is this integrated? All of this points me to is the following. The ant, the individual ant could probably not figure this out, yes? And of course, this is what's called the China brain idea. Let's say there's a soul of a nation, yes? Like uh, if you give everyone in the US a cell phone and all that, and maybe that's true, but in what space does this conscience exist, yes? That it integrates. So if it's all about integration of information, which it might be, what space is it aware of, yes? So maybe you're just a component in a bigger soul of a nation or maybe soul of humanity. It's possible, but you don't experience that. So in other words, your subjective experience and your subjective brain power would not allow you to process what's really going on. Just like the ant doesn't understand the goals and principles of the whole ant hill. The humans could just be the universe trying to understand itself, just like a sensory organ that the universe is developed. But if that's true, (laughs) we are far from that. We would need a much bigger brain or a different brain because our brain, again, shaped by evolution, might be missing most of the categories that it needs to understand this. Beyond time, beyond space, beyond energy, beyond causality, beyond matter, beyond beyond consciousness even. Does that make sense? Yeah, And you have no way to talk about that or even think about that. Just like an ant wouldn't. That seems to be the most plausible. Basically, we are very limited by the nature of our neural apparatus. But the fact that both precisions create absurdities or paradoxes, such as to me, logically, that they're both wrong, which is entirely logically consistent, which leads to something that's bigger or transcends that. That's not bound by even logic. Uh, it feels great to be so limited. <laughs> It'd be such a disappointment. But but, but wait, wait, wait. We can, we, can, we can glimpse at this. So what gives me a lot of comfort is numbers. And by the way, it always has. That's why I'm doing data science. Yep. Numbers are ideas, right? But they're hard ideas. Yes, you can prove that even numbers are even or odd numbers are odd or why they're odd, that the sum of two integers is always, the sum of two integers is always odd and, and things like that. So... So ideas are numbers, but they're hard. So the, the, the world of ideas exists. And where does that come from? That's not material. That's not physical. That's not, but it's, it's real. I mean, that's not real, but it's, it's very hard. Like you can prove things about numbers that will always be true. That doesn't give you comfort. That there is a world of ideas out there that seems to have a very real reality to it that's separate from our physical reality. You have often mentioned that numbers have this power where they can give you a certain glimpse. You have spoken about the central limit theorem and how that's a glimpse of the divine. So yeah, I... All right, so briefly, um, I think it was Laplace, but I might be wrong about that, who said that if the Greeks had been aware of the central limit theorem, Mm -hmm. they would worship it as a divinity. And I agree with that. Uh, The fact that the central limit theorem works is truly magical. Uh, the idea being that if you take repeated measurements yeah. of some physical process, 
and you average them all. Yes, that average, courtesy of the standard limit theorem, will be a better estimate of the true value than your best measurement. That's magical. And so the idea is that uh, if you take repeated samples, yes, of something, the samples, the mean of the samples will distribute normally, yes? What that means is that uh, that distribution, which is like a meta distribution, has a squared exponential fall off from the center of that distribution. In other words, you can get a pretty good sense of what is about to happen, as long as it's not sent from a Cauchy distribution, if you do that. that, that the fact that that works is magical. It's like Taiki gifts this to us. Yes. And yeah, so it's the basis of most of our science, finance, most of our modern civilization. I want to tie in another idea that you presented, which is while we've been talking about consciousness, you spoke about how you can take a test, you can track the activity in the brain and you can accurately measure what someone's going to do right before they do yes, it. Yes, you can. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in the idea of free will. will. Right. Do you have agency over your actions? Do you have free will? Uh, well, <laughs> again, this could be a whole two-hour conversation made itself and we'd still not be done. But let's, yes. let's talk about this. So first of all, uh, the whole idea of being a conscious agent, yes, presumes free will because otherwise it makes no sense, right? And so the idea is, do we, are we watching a movie and everything has already happened and we're just acting out what has already happened. We have no degrees of freedom, right? It's just, we're just tied by, uh, by, uh, by the past yep. and the present. Or can we make a genuine decision? Here's the situation, but I, as a free agent, can make a genuine decision. And this is frankly still unresolved. Uh, what I mean by that is um, if you're a pure, pure physicalist, you have to take the position, no, the causal chain of the universe is closed, yes? If we knew the position and the, you know, energy of all the particles, I should be able to predict what you're going to do next, yes? So if you're like God's data scientist or Laplace's demon, by the way, one, one way to conceive of data science is to make Laplace's demon real or to make the demon real, yes, Laplace's demon. So that's, that's the idea. Very quickly, what is the Laplace demon? Laplace demon is that. So Laplace pointed out, or maybe attributed to Laplace, is that if you knew the position and energy of all the particles in the universe, okay. you could predict what happens next. It's deterministic. Determin determinism, yes. The okay. universe is causally closed. And if you're a straight-up physicalist, a physical materialist, I think that's what they believe, yes. That, that has to be the case, yes. But then, then what is this? Is this just a movie? You know, it's then like a very... 3D movie, yes, but it's already happened. There's no fate, I guess, like destiny, determinism. There's no, you, there's no reason to beat yourself up about what you did because there, you, didn't, you could have not acted differently, yes. The problem is this really clashes with our subjective experience, yes. We do have the distinct experience that I could raise my hand or not. Even if you put a gun to my head, please don't, please don't, but let's say you did. There's all, I could have always done something else. And that's actually, uh, I believe, uh, the whole point of self-philosophy, like existentialism, ex existentialism, you could always do something else. Yeah. No matter what the circumstances are, you could always have chosen to do something else, yes. Mm -hmm. In other words, you are fully responsible for 
what you do because you are responsible for what you do, yes? And what neuroscience would say is that uh, this free will is an illusion, and here's why. But 300 milliseconds before you make the decision, before you act, the brain already made the decision on what to, to act. It's just that shortly after you made the decision, subconsciously, unconsciously, it tells you, your conscious perception, that that's what we're going to do, and then you do it. And so you, you think, every time shortly after you, after you made that decision mentally, so how about this? Shortly before you came up with this idea, you do it. Well, then you would think you have agency, yes? As an illusion. It's an illusion of control. Right, right, agency. right. Yeah. And those are the, uh, it's the research pro program of Benjamin Libet, yes? So who recorded from the uh, supplementary motor area, yes? And yes, you can predict from that what someone is going to do or not do, yes? However, and I probably owe you this for your show notes, that whole research program has recently become, it's probably not true is what I'm saying, like for complicated data science reasons. But basically, if you select the electrophysiological trace, the EEG trace, conditioned on making an action or not an action, you basically have a selection bias problem. And it might not actually be true. But of course, you could say, even if this specific experiment is not true, and I'll big check to cash that Libet was wrong, but he had a methodological problem, which is complicated. We'll not go there in detail, but I'll send you, I'll send you the link. Uh, but let's say, even if that's not true, if you're you know, phys physicalist or a neuroscientist, you would have to say, yeah, obviously I can predict from your brain activity. What are you going to do? And some people say that's, you can do it up to 10 seconds, you know, uh, like John Dylan Haynes, for instance. But again, uh, I would argue that as a, as a, as a, as a person, you have to act as if you were responsible because if you don't, well, you're not, you're not going to do anything. Then if you, if you say, well, everything is predetermined, it doesn't matter what I do or what I want to do. What I want to do is makes, makes no difference. Then probably you're not going to do much, yes? Is it a defeating feeling? It probably would be, yeah. It, it seems completely pointless. Yep. Everything is already preordained. Yep. So it's very ironic. It creates a self-fulfilling... Even you feeling defeated about it. Yes, I'm saying. Really, yeah. It creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. So as a human being, you have to act as if it makes a difference. And this is something that I think a lot of these, these physicalists don't fully realize. If, as a finance person, if you could convince your colleagues that the market's going to crash tomorrow, then it will. This, this self-fulfilling prophecy will create the, the reality. It will crash. So be careful, okay? Like, so there's something with human beings that uh, goes beyond what is what you believe is will create its own reality. Yes, half you half Greek tragedies are are based are like it's the basic plot of half the Greek tragedies. And there's manifesting. also manifesting. Yeah, it manifests. And 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 just to not to get too far, but just briefly, this is also very real historically. I'll give you an example from Roman history. I think it was the year 222 AD. Uh, the emperor was Caracalla. Yes, and a mystic in North Africa went around saying that this other guy, Macrinus, he was, I think he was the Praetorian prefect of Caracalla, will murder Caracalla and become emperor himself. Okay. So mystic said that that's what's going to happen. Macrinus was like, yo, you got to shut, shut up about this because you're going to get us all killed. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> then the mystic said, no, uh, this is, into, you know, I'm a mystic. And my visions have integrity. I will not recant. 
Yes, I, this is this is religion. This is not a trick. It's very serious. You will kill Caracalla and you will become emperor. That's like pre preordained, right? Macrinus, and then this this report went back to the Praetorian Guard in Rome. They sent a dispatch to Caracalla, who was in the Middle East at the time. But Macrinus, as the head of the Praetorian pre prefect, intercepted that report, and then was like, "Wow, wow! If Caracalla reads this, he's gonna kill me right now." So I have to murder him right now. <laughs> and that's what happened. And he murdered him and he did become the next emperor. And then the prophecy became real. So with people, you have to be very careful. Like, you know, like if you tell me so, so, such and such is going to happen, and if I want that or not, my action might make that happen or not happen. So life is very ironic like that. So it, so it goes beyond physical reality. If, if, a, if a human being believes something might happen, their actions will then be colored by that. So if I believe that my actions don't make a difference, because there's no actions, then I'll probably not take any actions. And then ironically, they, they won't make a difference because I won't do anything. So if you want people to make an impact in the world, you have to make believe that they do. And just to be clear. Which is the wrong belief. Like you have to believe in but, this but fictional he, but narrative. But hear me out. But hear me out. Yeah. Okay. Here's the irony of the world. Yep. Something doesn't have to be true to be useful. Let's say you have kids, and I don't think you have. I don't see any here. Let's say, <laughs> let's say you have the kids. You want to control their behavior. And you want them to become good human beings who have strong moral beliefs. You might tell them there's Santa Claus. And, uh, you know, if you want gifts from Santa Claus, you have, to be, you have to be a decent human being. You have to follow all the rules. Obviously, there's no Santa Claus. And obviously, it's not Santa Claus who gives them the gifts. But... You also, from a neuroscience perspective, you can say, well, if they're below, say, 10, they might not understand moral philosophy. So this is the way you have to tell them that. So is that wrong? You tell them that? It's obviously wrong that there's Santa Claus. That's not true. But it can still be useful to teach them moral beliefs in a, in a, in a mind space that they understand. That makes sense. So if people, it could be objectively false that there's such a thing as free will. Free will. But you would have to organize life and society as if there was, because I was nobody's going to do anything. And then, ironically, it wouldn't do anything. So life is very complex. There's like levels to this, you know. And I would say all of that transcends physical reality. So even if it's true that this is all an illusion, believing the illusion will basically undo the illusion because then you will act as if you had it, because otherwise you wouldn't. That makes which sense. makes it true. Which is like whoa. Let me tell you something. I tell my students up front in my principal's data science class that there are three goals that the class has. I'll tell them there's a fourth, fourth hidden goal, secret goal. And there might or might not be a fifth goal. The very last day, so if anyone's watching this, the very last day is the big reveal. I'll tell them what the fourth goal was. And I'll tell them there was no fifth goal. But the fact that there could have been one is my implicit fifth goal because it makes them aware the difference between risk and uncertainty. Yes. So was there a goal or wasn't there a goal? Because there was no real goal, but the fact that they started to become aware that there might be a difference between known unknowns and unknown unknowns is a goal in itself. So, so was there a goal or was there no goal? So again, life is very, very deep and paradoxical, which just shows me we don't have the brain power to really understand what's going on, including free will. A lot of bold ideas. I'm going to try and challenge this with another personal question for okay, you. Sure. 
when you were young, you were very interested in numbers, coding, learning. I've always from, been interested in that. Always been interested in that. Love, but love coding, love numbers. But you made this very bold stance that physics was largely in this confirmatory phase. You believed that string theory was untestable, almost like a religion. I was right. <laughs> uh, I don't want hate mail coming through. No, no, yeah. no. You, I, I love physics. It's just, yeah. keep going. Yeah. But yeah, largely you believe that it was in that phase, you felt dark matter was still a mystery. Standard model hadn't produced any new particles despite yeah, building yes. new colliders. If you don't count the confirmation of no, the Higgs no, boson. No. It's all true. You took the stance and then that's why you decided to go into psychology, which was like the wild, wild west in comparison. Well, yeah. So let me, let me pick this up. So but, uh, my question, I just want to finish our thought, thought is, are you saying that at no point in this decision tree, you had any agency over your actions? <laughs> oh, well, it certainly felt like I did. But, well, let me tell you something, what I actually feel about this. But give me, let me just retrace this. First of all, what you say is absolutely true. So I'm from Germany. And in Germany, the last two years of high school are much like the first two years of college here. It's also longer, at least when I was there. It was like 13 years of school versus 12, yes? So you can pick majors. Mm -hmm. And I was a math and physics major, yes? But doing that, I realized slash bet that basically what has been done in physics in the last hundred years was transformational, yes? So basically from, say, 1890 to 1990, when I started, when I started this, transformational progress have been made. Like the physical universe that we live in now, that we believe, is very different from 1890s classical mechanical Newton's universe. Like, you know, nuclear energy, relativism, all of that. Quantum How, theory, maybe? Yeah, quantum physics, yeah, all of that. However, I also realized that making any more progress in this is almost impossible. And what I mean by that is string theory is truly beautiful, yes. But I don't think beauty is not a good standard for truth, yes. Yes. But it's just beautiful and elegant, but there's, it's literally untestable empirically. So it's not, it's not a, as I said earlier, a scientific theory has to be testable. So string theory is, at least of right now, and probably for a very, very long time, thousands of years, unless something really un unexpected happens, untestable. It's more like a religious theory. Hypothesis of thoughts. Not, no, no, a hypothesis has to, a scientific hypothesis to be testable. String theory is not, not testable. testable empirically. So it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not a scientific, let me make it clear. It's a, it's a religious theory. It's not a scientific hypothesis. So that's dead end. Dark energy, dark matter, honestly, just put in as a fudge factor because otherwise the universe, as you observe, it makes no sense. It should flow apart, but it's not. Uh, um, like it should like uh, come apart, but it's not. So, so, uh, sorry, so, I don't mean to interrupt you, but just yeah. to uh, just on this point, sure. Aren't most scientific hypotheses don't they like before that? Doesn't like a religious theory precede it? No, 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 no. It has to be scientifically testable. Otherwise, we can go. To, let's go. Remind me of that in a minute. Okay, let's, sure. Let's finish this thought and let's go back to that. Sure. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, dark matter, dark energy, the idea is the universe is not accelerating as fast as we, it should. Yeah. So there must be some kind of like factor that keeps it together. Well, that's possible. Or are you sure you understand like the laws of the universe well, well enough? Like for instance, we only have this region of space to, it could be that they work, the laws work differently somewhere else. So anyway, I wouldn't be so sure. Standard model, as you said, when was the last time they discovered a new particle that added anything. So the Higgs boson was purely confirmatory. In other words, in English, I was right. It's now been 30 years and I don't think I missed anything essential. Yes. I mean, that sounds very dismissive, but it's not. I'm, I'm serious. 
did I miss anything that was fundamental? And the answer is, since I left physics 30 years ago, and the answer is no, I don't think so. Whereas in psychology, neuroscience, and data science, frankly, we had transformational progress, you know. Which brings us to the core of the question. Can you take credit for that decision because it wasn't, it wasn't you? Well, that goes to what I said bigger. So the reality is, here's, what, here's my personal belief on this, mm-hmm. but I cannot prove this in any way. I do believe we have individual agency, but once we as individuals do that, it becomes, it's like a blockchain. So the past is like this, this blockchain, yes? It becomes, it becomes immutable. Okay. So, so not to with buzzword bingo, but the reality is more like a blockchain. Like right now, the current moment, we're all writing to it from our individual brain to some space. But once it's committed, it's in, it's in the blockchain. So it cannot be changed. That's what the past is. Past cannot be changed because it's committed to the blockchain. But we do have agency over what I, we write. I, I feel, uh, yes. Because if you don't have it, that presumes that there is no such thing as consciousness. That makes sense. Not really. Right? Or, but I, I, I see no reason to believe that because of numbers, because of the central limit theorem. And again, uh, if you're a strict physicalist, why would a certain configuration of atoms and matter have a subjective mindset? It has to be fundamental on some level, which is, of course, outside the realm of science, which is very frustrating. Yes? But it's my personal belief that the, you don't have to believe that. I cannot convince you if you don't believe that. This is, but just, it seems absurd to think that, you know what I'm saying? Like, if, 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 if matter is all there is, and energy is all there is, and energy is just, or sorry, matter is just condensed energy. Sure. But where's the, at what point does consciousness come in? Because it's immersion, but what does that mean? You know what I'm saying? Like, makes no sense. I understand the idea is it's something like a melting point, that one atom does not have a melting point, but um, a, a constellation of them does. But why? And why is there, again, why is there anything? Why is, why is there any physical law? Just because it hasn't been proven yet does not mean that it could still be true. No, I understand this is a God of the gaps argument, but this seems different. This is fundamental. It's not like, oh, we have not shown this scientifically yet. The scientific process cannot, because the science says about intersubjective objectivity, and this is inherently subjective. It can't. Current science as we know it is not Science yet. as we know it cannot, which is, by the way, why I'm into data science, because data science is a new kind of science. It's in, 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 in my opinion, data science is an information science where we go to, at information directly. But information, again, is not physical. I'll give an example. You said you play music or say you don't play music? I don't play music. Mm, no. But you listen to music? Yes. Okay. So a melody, yes? Mm-hmm. Is that contained in the atoms that you hear that, that bounce, you know? Or is that if you transpose to a higher octave or lower octave, it's same, the same melody? It's not contained in, in any physical substrate, yes? It's transcending that. So basically, you, if you're serious about reality, I think you do have to, you know, acknowledge that there's a third thing that is not energy, that is not matter, that's information, which complicates things because it's out of reach of our current science. Which is, again, why I'm excited about data science because that's a science that goes at information directly, at least in theory, at least tries to. The information is this, is this entity that's beyond matter, energy, is this separate field of science yes. that deserves studying and that would maybe yes. hopefully answer some of these questions. That's right. And the way I see it is you are an agent that is made out of matter, that consumes energy, but then processes information in some space that we don't fully understand yet. 
Now, you had another point that I want to touch on you the, just, just before. Like, you were like, there's a bigger issue here. And you were absolutely right. But I forgot what, what the issue was. I forgot what you said. Um, My brain is broken at this point. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> it's fine. But go ahead. Let's, let's talk about the question I do remember now. I have to ask the most seductive question. Are we in a simulation? Are we just carbon-based avatars where our thoughts and impulses these actually that you've been tracking, that those are just keyboard prompts or mouse clicks in another dimension? Um, see, since the simulation theory has been like popularized, yes, it's also been vulgarized. Mm-hmm. So I'm starting to think I should say no, because otherwise people think it's just, you know, trivial or something like that. But I've been thinking about this for decades, you know, before it was cool, I guess. <laughs> so, so in that sense, I would say, yes, the idea is you are a meat avatar that your brain is made out of, mostly made out of, your brain is basically meat. It's a similar consistency than a steak. Uh, although more unsaturated, uh, DHA, EPA, fatty acids than saturated fatty acids, but otherwise mostly steak, mm-hmm. but computational meat. Yes. So, yeah. So, my, the idea would be that uh, this is close to Avatar, like in the sense that uh, that uh, you're experiencing this reality right now, but once you shut it off, you're going to be in some other reality that we don't can fully understand. And I think once virtual reality becomes more popular, it, most people will realize that this has already happened, if that makes sense. That, oh, you're, it's just in some other reality. Yeah. Have, you, have you tried virtual reality? Yeah. So it's shocking, right? Like, holy, yeah. wow. So, so We used to develop virtual reality, actually. We used to work in creating okay, it. Okay. But, yeah, but I digress, yeah. No, but the idea is that if we can now create some virtual reality, you're probably wearing these virtual reality classes right now in some other dimension. And they're like, hey, what would we like to live among the monkeys on a rock that's spinning around the sun? That sounds exciting, right? So you click, click on that. Living among the primates for a couple of decades, right? on a rock spinning around the sun. That sounds awesome, right? Maybe as a vacation, right? Who knows? Who's at the controls of the simulation? Well, who do you think? maybe you, whatever you is, like you, your real you, yes? In the other dimension. In the other dimension or the demiurge. Uh-huh. Maybe benevolent, benevolent, maybe not. Maybe, maybe God, maybe all of us. I, I, I don't know. Again, this just transcends any category that we have to understand reality. How much probability do you assign to the simulation argument and what's your confidence interval for it? I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, again, I'm sure it has to be something like that. I wouldn't call it a simulation anymore because yeah. it has been like vulgarized. Yep. It's kind of like, you know, yoga. Once that's popularized, it also becomes, you know, vulgarized. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, yeah, something like this happening for sure. That's your number, probability. I'm sure of it. 100%? <laughs> No, you can never be 100 as, as, as a be- 99? As a Bayesian, you can never be sure about anything. Yes. But um, <laughs> highly probable. Whatever, whatever you assign to that. Okay. So there's a highly probable possibility of a god, of a creator, of a designer. Yeah, but again, again, if you... Okay, let me tell you why I believe this. Mm-hmm. Again, with this paradox. If you don't assume that... And by the way, I just realized what your question was. Is this ties in with this? If you don't assume that there's some kind of creator, yes. And again, with creator, I'm being very like, doesn't have to be an entity. Then you just say, then you have to assume that the physical reality as we as we perceive the science is all there is. 
that, 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 but that makes no sense. It goes back to my day realization I had when I was 10 years old. It is impossible for something to come from nothing. So that means the universe has also have to have to have also have existed. Yes. If the energy content it has now, because energy cannot be created or destroyed. Yes. Have you heard of this concept of cellular automata? Of course. Yes. So, but which is the idea that smaller things can come together and create complexity out of nowhere? I understand that. But if you transcribe the history of the universe into binary digits, bits, in the time scale, at some point there was a zero and some point turns into a one. Where does that first one come from? So, you have a very long string of zeros forever. At some point, you have to have the first one. Where did that come from? It's a design argument. Yeah. Yeah. Can't be. This cannot be true. So, with that logic, Universe always have to have existed, which makes no sense because we know from conservation of energy, it always had to have come from somewhere. Yes. So that makes no sense. So it had to come from somewhere, but nothing, something cannot come from nothing. We know that. So this can't all be true. So it has, there must be something else going on. So my argument is not God or anything like that. My argument is something else is going on that we don't understand. Now, a couple things uh, that you raised. Uh, Interestingly enough, and again, I don't want to make this religious, but if you look at uh, Christianity, mm-hmm. it starts with let there be light, yes? Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that seems to be the case. So for instance, a mid position is you are stardust. Yes, you're star stuff. You, you came out of stars, which is true. So the elements in you are created, the ones that are not hydrogen, were created in uh, stars and the more advanced ones in supernova. That's correct. But where did that come from? Ultimately, you are condensed light. So in the very, very early universe, like that's where my physics background comes back in. In the very, very early universe, it's full of very high energy dense gamma rays. They collided. They, they, they created first particles, as you said, gluons and other ones. Yep. Light. But where did that light come from? That seems very odd. As a, as a, as a, as a physicalist, I can assure you, energy does not come from nothing. It just transforms. But why does, the, why does the universe have a certain energy content? Again, it makes, it makes no sense. So, so you are like condensed light, ultimately. The stars came later, much later. But that comes, that raises this question that you had earlier, which is, doesn't everything come from a religious theory first? And I have to say, well, sort of. So, so the idea is that um, if you look at uh, bacterial theories, like for instance, uh, Semmelweis thought you have, to, you have to wash your hands. Mm-hmm. In hospitals, otherwise you're gonna kill people, right? Your doctor, or Wagner, Alfred Wagner said, uh, "Continents drift," and both were dismissed. Yes, but what convinced people eventually was they made testable predictions. Yes, but it did start with religious theory, huh? It did start with which is what string theory you have. De- you have debunked string theory because okay. it's religious we theory. All, we all have these beliefs. Yes. Yes. But at some point, what is convincing then is not the belief you have. It's the testable prediction. Like, if this is true, we should see this. And then once you see more and more patterns and data that are only true if you make this assumption, this gives, this gives backwards credence to the belief. That makes sense. Yes. But it has to be testable. But that test could be in the future. Like, there, we haven't reached oh, yeah, that yeah. stage where we no, could create the so test for string, string theory. theory is not in principle unfalsifiable. Yeah. So let me give you something that's in principle unfalsifiable. Let's say you're a psychoanalyst. And I say, hey, I think you want to sleep with your, with your mother. And you say, no, I don't. And I say, oh, your denial proves that you do because I also believe you have, you have defense, defense mechanism. But if both outcomes, you, you admit that you want to sleep with your mother 
or you deny that you want to sleep with your mother has the same outcome, that is not falsifiable. It's it's like ideologists. It's 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 closed. Yes. If 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 any behavior, anything you do validates the theory, it's not a scientific belief. It's a cult or religion. Yes. Yeah. So what's the fundamental difference is is that the scientific theory is in principle testable. There's some things that will happen if this is true, and some things will not happen. And then we'll see what happens and what doesn't happen. The problem with string theory is that it's at, it's at energy levels that it might as well not be testable. It's just too so far out of reach that you could probably convert the entire universe into a big collider and you still wouldn't get there. So we are, we are many orders of magnitude away from the, the, the lengths that we need to get there to, to separate that, if it's true or not. So it's not religious in a sense that uh, it's in principle untestable, like the like psychoanalysis or an, ide- an ideology, um, you know, but it's close enough that in unless something un- 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 unexpected happens, it's out of reach of science, just energy wise. We cannot get anywhere close to that energy level to build a collider to test that. Now, of course, it's not in principle impossible, but it might just effectively be out of reach. So if you time travel, that might be possible, but not with any mechanism that we understand right now yes so many powerful ideas that we have spoken about today and i feel like we could keep going for yes, hours and it feels hours like and we hours could go another couple days yeah <laughs> because we have only scratched the surface i i completely I mean, agree i'm yeah. almost every time i said well this goes much deeper but for the purposes of this let's just focus on the surface level interestingly we already two hours in and we're still just scratching the surface these are such powerful ideas and there's so much to explore yes, i yes. have 100 more questions but we have to start wrapping up at some point. Okay, okay. So before we move into our final questions, I would love it if you can interpret what you've built with the Lego and what do you think I've built? Oh, so that's actually great. So you built a car <laughs> or a boat? Sure. Something functional? Yeah. Very good. This is yeah. uh, your finance, yes. So at the, at the end of the day, uh, there has to be like a bottom line, yes. I built something more abstract, I guess, like some kind of like... Uh, Maybe this is like consciousness and this is like subconscious and this is, or this is reality, our, our perceived reality, this is the underbelly. By the way, it's a good example. The layers of perception. Yes, yes. Okay. So, so if anything, this is iceberg theory. Maybe this is what we can uh, talk about. This is what we can measure. This is what we can perceive and so on. Yes. I love it. So, so, but this is just an interpretation. Uh, I was just like fiddling with this. But, but the idea is, I do believe that. So that, that what's out there goes way beyond what we can perceive what we perceive or believe is way beyond what we can measure or demonstrate. Yeah. And then what we measure, demonstrate is way beyond what we can talk about and then what we can maybe communicate. Just because we can talk about it doesn't mean we agree, yes? It presumes we have the same language. So the fact that we can communicate at all and that we can agree on anything at all, that's maybe the biggest miracle of all. Because if you have this giant brain, which you do, big brain, yes? Hopefully. <laughs> Nothing. Very sure. Um, <laughs> hundreds of billions of moving parts because it's not just yeah. neurons, it's all synapses and connections and all that. And I have a different brain. We haven't even talked about that at all, how different brains are, diversity of brains, which is in itself very fascinating, which is kind of the real thing I'm studying, like brain diversity, right? Neural diversity. The fact that we have any common ground is magical. It's a miracle, yes? I think. And remarkable. So, yeah, anyway, sorry. So many more ideas. I feel like I'll have to call you back for a part two. Sure, happy and to we'll do it. we'll have to spend three days recording an yes, episode. Yes, happy right? to do it. And still only scratch the surface. There's a lot going on. <laughs> There's a lot going on. 
Let's start moving into our final questions. Yes, sir. What are some books, movies, or role models that have strongly influenced you in your life? All right. So now this is hyper idiosyncratic. <laughs> so I don't think anybody should like take any lessons from this necessarily. But since you asked, uh, so for instance, one mo- movie, if you want to pick movies that has deeply, deeply influenced me is Malhound Drive. Have you seen yeah. it? Yeah. Why? Well, so I think it's fair to say that that's my favorite movie. And in my own mental development, there's a movies before watching that movie and movies after watching that movie. Basically changed how I see movies forever. And the idea is exactly what you've been talking about. Like if, if you just make a movie, you can make it anything you want, right? It doesn't have to be real. Like there is a, there looks like there's a band, but there's no band. Yes. Yeah. And, and piecing, I have, I must've seen that like 30, 40, 50 times. It's fascinating. Yes. And it, it plays on these themes of what we perceive to be real. Subjective reality. Subjective reality. Yep. All that. So that's by far my favorite movie and probably also the most impactful on my own thinking. In terms of books, I'm going to, same, the criteria I have is if I can truly, truly, truly learn something and like it changes my view of the world forever. Like give me a, a very trivial example, but one that's very striking to me. Have you heard of the book, uh, How to Make Friends and Influence People? Yep, Dale Carnegie. Yes, Dale Carnegie. And so that's obviously memed to death. But at some point, I actually read it. Uh, maybe, maybe, I don't know, almost 20 years ago now, yes? And I was shocked. Let me tell you what, why it shocked me and why it had a deep impact on me. And that is, uh, before reading the book, I thought, as a scientist, yes, it's very simple. If I'm right, the only job is to convince you that, that I'm right with the facts and the logic. And then if I'm, in, if I'm compelling enough, you will agree. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yes. Yeah. Well, obviously that is not the case. Okay. Uh, in other words, it's not enough. It's, it's maybe not even necessary. I mean, I hope it's necessary to be true and all that and of sound mind and of sound reason and of goodwill, but it's not enough to convince you. If you believe something very strongly, that will not do. There's a reason why you believe whatever you believe, maybe your experiences yep. or uh, your goals or your motivations. And what Dale Carnegie points out over and over and over again is, so, so the, the meme version is and the, the mid version, that's what I'm saying, everything that's been popularized kind of gets vulgarized. So the vulgarization of Dale Carnegie is be nice to people. And of course, I am all for kindness. It's very important, <laughs> but that's not the lesson. The lesson is you have to see the world as someone else sees the world. And he points out that bad people, Al Capone, other people like that, they thought they're, they are like doing the good, the right thing. Yes. So you have to understand the world from their perspective to make sense of it. If you want anything, if you want to convince people, if you want something from them and you see the world, how they see it. And, and it's, I mean, and he points out that a lot of marketers make this mistake. They, they send you a marketing mail, how if you buy our product, that's going to make our life better, the marketer's life, yeah. obviously. Yeah. But you have to say, you have to switch things like how will it make your life better? To, so, so, so in, a, in a nutshell, to convince somebody of something they don't already believe, to be compelling, to be persuasive, you have to do the best you can to try to see the world from their perspective. And that was lost on me before. I was like, oh, if I'm right and I have all the facts and all the logic, that should be in itself enough. But then, you know, I'm sure you've had the same experience. That's not true. Uh, if you have any online argument with anybody or even in person, you know that's not true. Yes? Have you ever convinced anyone just from facts and logic? No. And this is why. You have to see the world from their perspective. So that was a book that was influential. Once I was like, oh, 
That made sense. In terms of role model, again, this is a bias I have, but I like people of action, like Theodore Roosevelt, for instance. And if you look at the Roman emperors, I'm much more impressed with people like Trajan or Aurelian or Majorian, or I know Caesar was not an emperor, but proto-emperor, people who made something happen. Whereas people who just organized things like Diocletian or who were more into cohesion like Hadrian, that doesn't do anything for me. I'm, I'm, I am, I admire the enlightened man of action. So someone who's not just cruel or like destructive, but seems enlightened and makes it happen. So a good example would be Trajan, yes, expanded the Roman Empire, uh, conquered Dacia, conquered parts of Parth- Parthia, right? Versus Hadrian was like very overstretched. Let's abandon Dacia. Let's abandon Parthia. That's, in my mind, inexcusable. No matter what else you do, you cannot go back. That's not good, yes. Or Diocletian uh, with his tetrarchy and setting up price controls and all that. Some people admire that. They're like, oh, he made the Roman economy work. I'm like, no, he brought about feudalism. He just didn't know about that, but, but he was not a, not a man of action. He's organizing things. But that's my personal bias. So much I can push back, but there's so much to do. No, no, no. I, um, I recognize keenly that other people would disagree with this. Yeah. Uh, but, but that's my personal bias. And Terry Roosevelt had a great quote about this, which I cannot remember off the top of my heart, but it was something about, it's the people who are the battlefields uh, yes. who take the decisions, you have not to be the in critics. The, that, yeah. That's the area. Who counts the man in the arena, exactly. not, not the critic. That's the one. And you know, that's a good point. Uh, so for instance, uh, so I used to say movies, yes. It's a big difference between someone tries and tries and tries and maybe fails and fails and fails to make a good movie or a great movie versus a critic who only, it's easy to criticize. Yeah. If you're so great and you're so enlightened, do, do better. So I think in the modern society, there's a very cynical view that you are a good person or you are valuable by criticizing something. And no, that's not true. Uh, I mean, it's, it's an important first step to see the flaws in something, but it's only the first step. Very rarely is that in itself enough. You have to then say, okay, and, and here is how we're going to do it better. And that's where usually most people fall apart because their ideas are completely not workable or, you know, not even a good ideal because they didn't think of the un- unintended consequences and all of that. So, but no, it's not just that. Uh, I also, Warren Buffett, for instance, his, his philosophy would be you have to be a snowball. Do the right thing every day, a little bit. And over a 40, 50 year career without doing anything catastrophically stupid, you'll be okay. You're going to create transformation progress. So I try to emulate that. So I guess people who have a, or try to have a big impact in a kind and enlightened way. We spoke about death earlier. Yes, sir. In the past, you said death is the multiplication of the null vector. Uh-huh. And now you say- How do you know about this? I've it's got true? sources everywhere. Got my interns attending your yes, classes. Yes, your spies everywhere. <laughs> spies everywhere. My entire life has been building up to so, this interview. Yes, so I'll say it right now. Uh, where are you going? In the past, I used to say death is the multiplication of the null vector. So it brings in the null space. Everything you did, it's a great nullifier, yes? yes? You were like an emperor before or a slave. Now you died and it brings in the same null space. It destroys information, yes. That's why. I, but now I say what I say, which is- Divide by zero. It's dividing by the zero vector or divided by zero. Yeah. What does that mean? That what mean, happens when that you means, die? That means, well, what it means. It means God can divide by zero. But you can't. So in other words, anything could happen. So if I die and it's the great void, like I said, like it's like with 
anesthesia, but forever. But then I would never know, right? It's just gone. Moment of singularity. Huh? It's a singularity. Yeah, but it's like nothingness. It's not even nothing. It's beyond nothing. It doesn't smell, feel. There's no time. There's nothing. It's just eternal void forever. Yes? Are you afraid of it? No, no, no. Because if that happens, then I would never know. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like literally, like unknowable. It's like nothingness forever. It's not gray or black or dark. It's just nothing, yes? But leaving behind things you love, people you love. Uh, well, let's get to that. Uh, so that's one possibility. But what's much more likely is that you're going back to your astral plane. Like so if this avatar thing is true, maybe you take your goggles off and you're like, oh, you know, I'm now this 150 dimensional being in this thousand dimensional. And I can see all the spectral colors and all that beyond time, beyond space. I'm, you know, again, eating time. Or I don't know. You're this much bigger being, yes. Or you're like, oh, we were all connected all along or something like that, yes. Or you just wake up again as somebody else, uh, as you, uh, like some Hindus believe that, yes. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't put it past them. That that's true, you know, because you just woke up one day, you were whoever you are, right? That could happen again, right? Somebody else. But all, that's all unknowable. So dividing by zero. So, but, but no, I'm not afraid of that at all because I, with my journeys now, as a psychologist, as a physicist, as a neuroscientist, and now as a data scientist, there's no way this is all there is. There's no way. There's more. No way. There's more. Another thing, look, you lived nine months, the first nine months of your life, in your mother's womb, yes? Mm-hmm. It was warm, it was cozy, yes, quiet. All of a sudden, one day, <laughs> you were... Chaos. Yes, chaos, <laughs> right? It was cold. Uh, it, was, it was bright. Yeah. You have nothing made any sense. Something was screaming like crazy. It was you, but you didn't know that. Yeah. And just complete pandemonium, yes? You already know that. That had happened once before. And you know that, you know, a butterfly goes through these stages, like an egg, as a pupa, as a butterfly. You know all these examples of the transformational change, yes? What makes you think this is the only and last level of development in the universe, whatever the universe is, that you're going to achieve? So we're going to do in this world what we can. Again, be nice to people. Please, be, be kind. But with that in mind... Uh, like, for instance, a lot of people, if Caesar is a good example, a lot of people see if Caesar was mean. Caesar was not mean. He, had a, he was probably the, the most effective pardon policy anyone ever had at that time. As a matter of fact, that's what got him killed because he pardoned Brutus and Cassius, who are now in the lowest level of Dante's Inferno, yes? Because if you betray somebody who pardons you, that's unforgivable, yes? Right. Anyway, point is, so be kind, yes? but also try to be effective, bring about a positive change in the world that you, that you see. And that's, I mean, look, I'm trying to do that at scale. I teach about a thousand students a year at NYU. I do as much outreach as I can, like today. And so I maybe one day create this religion that's going to be based on the central limit theorem. Yes. <laughs> and uh, you do the best you can in this universe. You extend it as much as you can. You exercise. You try to, try to be healthy as, as much as you can. You try to extend this as much as possible because you hope technology will extend it even further. But at some point, it's going to end and then we'll see what happens next or not. This ties perfectly into my next question, my penultimate question. You often say that in life, you always face the explore-exploit trade-off. You always do. How do you know this? This is amazing. How do you know this? Yes. That's a good example, actually. What stage are you in now? And what would you like a legacy to be looking back? All right. Um, I think I finally arrived at a point 
where I am now, as you said, in the exploit stage. So I've been, been a long journey. Yes. I did physics, explored religion as a child. Yes. Yeah. I did psychology seriously for you know, a decade, neuroscience. But I think I now finally arrived at this new kind of science, data science that ties, you know, my love of numbers, my love of data, my love of code, and my love of science and of psychology and neuroscience together. Yes. So I think I'm now like, you know, putting the foot to the pedal, I guess, and, yeah. and like going hard on that. And that's also, as you, as we discussed, transformation change happening right now with AI. I mean, it seems very exciting. Yes. Yeah. As for legacy, honestly, I mean, I don't want to be coy, but I think you have to ask other people. Like that's something you have to ask other people. Like that's not something you can know. Yes. I mean, I'm. What would you like it to be? Well, that's cliche, right? To make the world a better place. Yes. But, but also, um, what do I like it to be to reduce suffering? Reduce suffering. And of course, how do you, you have to change the matrix because you could say, well, you know, even if you, here's the problem. Let's say you improve the system. Let's say you improve the material conditions of the world. That just gives people a bigger moral hazard to do the wrong thing. No, I want to make the world morally a better place. I know that's old fashioned, but I'll, there's another discussion. But basically, here's something that we haven't even touched on with the demiurge, yes? But I believe, and this is just a belief, although we're starting to suffer. You know what? Here's why I believe this. So in my lab at NYU, we have a recent study where we ask people, you know, what's, what's in their mind, what's bothering them. And it's truly shocking. Everybody carries around a lot of pain. A lot. Like, they're hiding it just like a cat would hide physical pain, but a lot of mental pain. A lot of people have been hurt. If you dig deeply, who have they been hurt by? They've been hurt by other people. Right? So it's not inconceivable that all of this is like kind of a soap, soap opera that some trans-dimensional beings watch, if you want to watch is the right word, that enjoy human suffering. It's not inconceivable. Or that just enjoy, maybe, so if, if life is not determined, maybe they're interested in what's going to happen next, yes? And because oddly enough, the most entertaining thing seems to be happening. Does that make sense? Like if you look at the 20... 16 election, Hillary Clinton already posts, you know, congratulations to me, the future president, 10 days before the election. If you tempt the universe like that, that's not going to happen. Like, <laughs> like, like, it's almost karmic. Like, every time I've been 100% sure something will happen and was cocky about it, hubris, it didn't happen. It's almost like, no, we're not going to let you do that. So I'm now almost superstitious about this. Like, if you're, if you're too sure something's going to happen, you flex about this and brag about it. It's not going to happen. For some reason, it's very odd. It's, so the universe is sampling from a very odd, odd distribution. So here's what's here's what odd. Every day, right, is, is highly conditioned from, from the last day. You're not waking up as a blank slate, yes. Every day is not a new day. It's like highly determined by the choice you made yesterday. Not a Markov chain. It's not a Markov chain. It's, it's yeah. highly, highly determined by, by, by other things, yes. It's mm-hmm. shockingly complex. But it's highly determined also. But it's sampling from a conscious distribution, something like that. It's... Crazy things happen every day. Uh, I mean, I mean, as I'm not sure if you follow the stock market, but you know, um, in May, April, I think of 2020, the oil price went negative. All of a sudden, uh, crazy things are happening every day, like that are completely unexpected. You know, 
chaos, everyday, entropy, entropy, action, yes, and yes, action. Yes. So entropy management, you haven't even talked about. So in terms of like, uh, <laughs> so in terms of legacy, yeah, entropy has to be handled at some point. That would be your legacy. Yeah. Try and handle entropy at some yes, point. Yes, like management of entropy or like, easy goals, easy legacy. Yeah. <laughs> but taking a take taking control of entropy. Yeah. How about that? How about that? Yeah. But but as those are all like we could have like five different conversations about the, all of that entropy management by itself, uh, neuroscience, data science, psychology, subjectiveness, free will, you name it. But look, these are all. I'm not saying just to be clear that I have solved any of this. Uh, I'm still exploring, but I think I'm in the exploit stage where I'm tying all these things together. Yes, where on the, also it takes a while to develop these skill sets. You know, coding and science and all of that, which is why it's important to hedge your bets and live longer uh, because otherwise you're not going to have enough time. But anyway, that's for a different day. Uh, I hope this was interesting. I don't know. Anything else? Final question. Yes, sir. John Polkenhardt once said that if you reduce mental events to physics and chemistry, yes, sir. you destroy meaning. Uh-huh. Over the last couple of hours, this is by, by the way, this has been the longest episode I've ever recorded. We've spoken about illusions, perception, subjective reality, objective reality, start talking about consciousness, simulations, free will. Final question to bring it all together, hopefully to make sense of all of this. What is the meaning of this all? What do you think is the meaning of life? Pascal <laughs> Wallace. Yes, that's very simple. The <laughs> meaning of it is to find the meaning of it. It's meta. Okay. The point of it is to find the point of it. Like it's like looking for it is the meaning. Like, but is there a point to find? Are you constantly we'll, in that we will, pursuit of it? No, no, no. Uh, it will become obvious when you found it. Maybe that's, how, maybe that's what happens when you die. Divide by zero. Like maybe that's when you're like, oh, that's what it was. You know? But yeah, there's no question that this opens up a whole new kind of worms. That meaning, yes, is a good example of how the mental space trans- transcends the physical space. In the physical space, there's no meaning to any of this. The, the atmosphere doesn't have a meaning, yes, by itself. The, an atom does not have meaning by itself. But the, I would argue that life has a, has a meaning by itself. And to uncover what that is, is the meaning of it. Kind of like the Caracalla thing. Like you are, by the fact that you're looking for it and searching for it and, and, and giving it meaning, it gets the meaning. It's, maybe that's what people do, if that makes sense. So, so you and that's maybe why the brain jumps to these conclusions. Like it's a meaning-making machine. Yes? Until you find the meaning, finding the meaning itself is right. the meaning of life. For now, yes. For now. The working meaning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it has to be. It has to be. It has to be. It's a powerful idea. Pascal, thank you so much. If people want to connect with you, find out what you're up to, about your next work, where can they do so? Uh, well, we, I'm on Twitter. I am, I have a website, lab website. I have a bunch of blogs uh, that I suspect you have read because you've asked very pointed questions. <laughs> uh, yeah, email. Those are the places to find. Pascal, thank you so much. It was an honor talking to you. Wonderful.